The homestead from which I had been removed was situated in the western part of the village of Jonesville and had gained the reputation of being haunted while I was an inmate of an insane asylum. People imagined they saw strange sights and heard strange sounds. A young man, brother to the lady who lived in the house, was put into the room to sleep where I had been confined previous to being carried off to the asylum. It was in this room I had been drugged, chloroformed, starved, and finally dragged out by force when they took me off to the asylum. Well, the lady told me her brother would not sleep in the room, that he insisted upon it that he had seen me all night, or at any rate, he saw a woman with long, flowing hair, large, black eyes, and long, bony arms, who kept walking the floor, wailing and wringing her hands, moaning pitifully. As he had never seen me, he did not know that the description he gave would not agree or correspond with myself, but his imagination pictured the scene so vivid that he would not sleep in the room. And thus, you see, the report got circulated that the house was haunted. It was into this house that I must go and remain until I get a settlement. I did not fear the specter. I had no dread of midnight visitants. But I did dread to return to the home now vacant and desolate. What? Return alone to the home where clung so many painful reminiscences? Behind the Scenes, or Life in an Insane Asylum, by Lydia A. Smith. Lydia was taken from her home in Jonesville, Michigan, on August 12, 1866, escaped from the insane asylum, and returned to her home, February 1872. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. It's a cold, dark, gloomy, overcast day in the Allegheny Highlands. It's mid-October, and yet there are snow flurries. Going to have to light the first fire of the season. And with such the perfect atmosphere... I present today's episode, a Halloween special, with Marty Seibel. He's a paranormal investigator, a ghost tour guide in Stanton, Virginia, and a history buff. So his paranormal interests align with his interest in history, which makes a fascinating approach to the paranormal. Um, If you live in the Harrisonburg, Virginia area, and you're looking for something to do with your family over the next few weekends, um, Marty and his team are doing a handful of ghost uh, tours on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. If you're interested in that, check out ghostsofstanton.com. I'll put a link down in the show notes, and you can find uh, tickets for that and more information. 
Now, if you're interested in watching some of Marty's paranormal investigations, he's got a bunch of videos on YouTube. His uh, YouTube channel is called Black Raven Paranormal. Now, on that note, in one of Marty's two stories that he tells, he talks about the investigations he's done and hearing um, disembodied voices. And in that one, I played clips from one of his YouTube videos and some other clips that he sent me via email. So just so you understand what you're listening to, um, a little behind the scenes on the podcast, I've, I've been making a lot of the scores. So if there's music on this podcast, either a friend has made the music or I make like a little bit of a score with like electronic music software. So that's what I've done on this one. I usually always buy sound effects and I add that. But in his stories, um, I don't add any sound effects. So I do make a score, but then when it goes into the other audio, what you're listening to are his recordings from his paranormal investigation. Um, he claims that you will hear ghostly voices in some of these clips. Certainly there are some strange sounds that sound a lot like a voice in some of the clips. The one that seems the most um, hard to deny if it's an honest clip is the one that sounds like a moan. With each of these clips, I, I loop them. So you'll have, uh, so I play the same clip multiple times. So you'll be able to really pay attention and hopefully hear these supposed ghost voices. And if these truly are the voices of ghosts, then I am absolutely kind of blown away and honored to be able to have the voice of a ghost on my podcast. So let me say thank you to everyone over on Patreon for helping out with this podcast. Um, as I've said before, it's just me doing everything and I do a lot of travel to get to these guests. I want to do them all in person. So any uh, financial support has been really helpful and really appreciated. So we have a new um, Patreon pet, a new Patreon patron, and that is Kendall Wine. So thank you very much. And to the rest of you at the highest tier, I'd like to say thank you to Jess Paget, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw, On Stanley of Pyramid Metaphysical Store, also in the Shenandoah Valley, which is where we are with this podcast, Bailey Grenert, Franklin Renshaw, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Steve Enchilds, and Tyler Lively, and everyone else at the lower tiers. Thank you so much. So I don't, I don't really know very much about the history of these asylums, but what you heard, that's going to be kind of a main focus for a main part of today's episode is learning about these old asylums, which in their day, as you'll hear Marty say, were called lunatic asylums. And the first thing I, I thought of is how I am vaguely aware of the etymology of the word lunatic. Late 13th century, lunatic, affected with periodic insanity, dependent on the changes of the moon. From Old French, lunatique, insane, or directly from Latin, lunaticus, moonstruck and from Latin, luna, moon. Compare Old English, monsioque, lunatic, literally, moon sick. And that makes me bring to mind that there is uh, someone near and dear to me that I know who's a very grounded, very rational, um, 
not superstitious in the slightest, not fanciful person who I know that is very unnerved by full moons and uh, always feels off and kind of very introverted and kind of wants to get get away when the full moons are happening. And uh, perhaps he's a little bit scared of becoming moon sick. So in doing a little research for the readings of this episode, um, I found there's a handful of accounts of people who were in these lunatic asylums in the 1800s who then wrote books about the horrors within and the mistreatment. So that clip you heard in the beginning was one of just such in Michigan. And it was a woman who supposedly was completely normal and some kind of uh, con by her husband and some other woman had her sent away. So for today's podcast reading, I'm going to read from a book written in 1851. It is called Astounding Disclosures, Three Years in a Madhouse by a Victim, written by himself. A true account of the barbarous, inhumane, and cruel treatment of Isaac H. Hunt in the Maine Insane Hospital in the years 1844, 1845, 1846, and 1847 by Dr. Isaac Ray, James Bates, and their assistants and attendants. Also, a correct account of the abusive treatment of a multitude of other patients, some of which are tantamount to murder. Chapter 2 The author of this little work was, on the 21st of September, 1844, taken to the Maine Insane Hospital in the city of Augusta, state of Maine, a wild maniac. The hospital at that time was under the superintendence of Dr. Isaac Ray, now the Butler Insane Asylum of Providence, Rhode Island. In this institution, I remained nearly three years, and I shall endeavor to give a vivid description of each and every circumstance connected with my confinement, treatment, torture of body and mind, and the malpractice performed on me. These facts will enable the reader to judge of the extent of my madness. It is of no use for me to deny, for of that fact there is abundant proof that when I was taken to the hospital, I was a perfectly deranged man, laboring under a strong fever of the brain, of great and uncontrollable mental excitement, of which, under humane treatment, I should have recovered and no doubt returned to my business in full possession of my mental and physical faculties. But the moment I entered the hospital, a fear came over me. A deep state of mental depression was followed by that of horror and fear, and of course what little consciousness I had at the time was put to flight, for I knew not, but dreaded what was to follow. I entered the hospital on Saturday evening. The first essay they made was to have me swallow some pills. I refused, but was forced to submit and took them. This operation was under the direction and personal assistance of Dr. Ray and the attendant Alvin S. Babcock. The next day, I felt the necessity of a shower bath and expressed my feelings to Dr. Ray. But in language you will doubtless think very cold and vulgar and so learned a gentleman, he thus addressed me. We're very short on for water and I can't let you have it. There hasn't been no rain lately and I can't let you have it. I then said, Sir, if you will tell me where you get your water, I will go and get some myself, as a gallon will be sufficient. He then said that he could not let me have it, to which I replied, Sir, 
I think that I need it, and if you cannot let me have it here, will you permit me to go to my own home or some other place where I can have such remedies as my case requires? To this he replied, you can't go. You have been brought here by your friends, and you must stay until you get well. I was hereupon plied with medicine, the effect of which was to cause me to travel the gallery for hours and hours, perfectly wild and uncontrollable, as patients often are in almost any insane hospital. But I trust to God that in no other case have those walks been caused in madmen, as was mine, by horrid drafts of, to me, a nameless medicine. This state of my mind and physical prostration, through the effect of that medicine, was continued for several days without intermission, until about the close of the next week or something in the week following, when I was given medicine which threw me upon my bed, followed by the most horrid chills that shook me, body and soul, and made my very bones rattle, my teeth chattered, and my bones rattled like the dry bones of a skeleton." I gave up all hope of life with such composure as I could muster, but my hour had not come, for at this juncture Babcock, the attendant, came and gave me a bowl of hot ginger tea, saying in a jocular manner, Die. Oh no, not you. You'll not die yet. You're worth a dozen dead men. The tea and the application of a pyramid of blankets and comforters warmed the system, the chills retreated, and I kept my bed for some days. About the ninth day after I went there, I was again subjected to the horrid wildfire medicine, which was followed by the same terrible and strange sensations and wanderings over the gallery. I refused peremptorily to suffer this treatment. I refused to take the medicine. The attendant insisted that I should, and harsh words followed. I told him the medicine was destroying me, and I would not take it. He then commanded me in a tone of authority to take the medicine. I did take it. I took it from his hand and dashed it out the window. In a moment, this stalwart, muscular man struck me with a violent blow upon my head, which either knocked me down or he instantly seized me and crushed me to the floor. I struggled. Then he seized me by the throat and choked me. I began to have fear that he had my death in view and would murder me upon the spot. I begged for my life when he harshly exclaimed, I will learn you not to throw away your medicine when I give it to you. I begged for mercy and promised if my life was spared to take anything he might give me. Upon this he released me, and I continued my usual dull routine of the previous days. The next morning Babcock entered my room, as usual, with medicine. From the treatment I had already received, of course I dared not refuse to swallow the terrible draft, though it should instantly cause death. I took the pills and some liquid contained in a mug. These compounds had the effect to destroy my bodily health for the residue of my earthly existence. There is a penalty for such malpractice, and if I had in my own power to bring Dr. Isaac Ray and Mr. Horatio S. Smith before the legal tribunals of my country, I should not possibly find any difficulty in sending them to the state penitentiary for the full term of 20 years for malpractice and three years additional for conspiracy. I frequently appeal to Dr. Ray to allow me to go home. I was aware that I could not pay my expenses in such an institution, being idle and earning nothing. He always replied that if I was not able to pay my expenses, the town would pay it. But I told him that I did not wish the town to pay my bills, 
I did not consider my case one for public charity, for I was both able and willing, if allowed my liberty, to provide for myself and my family and avoid the uncalled-for stigma of being a charge to community. Again, I was plied with medicine, such as few mortals dream of. At one time, I found the vile components had the effect to paralyze my jaws, at another to affect the drums of my ears, apparently to make me deaf. The bones of the jaws would snap and crack, which caused much distress and pain when I attempted to eat or talk. These sensations were horrid beyond recital. Then again, I took from Dr. Ray medicine that caused me to weep like a child, tears of anguish that I could not restrain. Then the reverse would occur. I could not weep. Not a tear would flow. I felt as stoic and indifferent as a pirate, believing that I could stand unmoved by any sympathy, though every friend cherished or loved were slaughtered before my eyes. Some nights I could not sleep. Tortures and dreams of the most horrid kind agitated me. Fiery thoughts and wild fancies hovered over my brain. Thus, in this horrible mood, would I pray for the return of day. The next night, medicine would put me in the most dreadful stupor, a sleep of unconscious heaviness. Nothing could wake me. In the morning, I again would be subjected to the maniac's draft and the madman's walk. At length, I appealed to Dr. Ray as a matter of human sympathy to administer some deadly draft to end my woe or send me home. He replied, nothing is given you but what is for your good. You shall go home when you get well. One Sunday morning, I met him and again appealed to the old subject, liberty or death, and insisted stronger than ever for conclusion, stating that the practices there were atrocious and inhumane. Then he replied, If you are abused here, then you get well and go home. The law will give you redress. I then distinctly remember that upon a former occasion, Dr. Ray had informed me that no secret transactions of that institution were ever revealed out of its portals. This enforced me to say, Dr. Ray, if you should murder me here, no one would reveal it. Thereupon, Dr. Ray called out in a loud and commanding tone, Bring in the saws and axes. I was alarmed. It was Sunday, and no visitors were allowed in the hospital. I was in the power of a man whose heart was adamant, whose occupation was bloody, and whose intention, I then believed, was my annihilation. I shuddered, was horrified and powerless. I gave myself up as a lost man, supposing that I should become a subject for the anatomical butchers, employment for this miscreants, these fiends, these ghouls. This state of mental convulsion was not long, to be sure, for Dr. Ray did retire without butchering my body, being contented, doubtless, with the scathing and deep torture he had given me. It would be almost a matter of supererogation in me to ask the reader if he can, under any conclusions, impressions, or inferences, draw the slightest idea of the good that would come of such treatment upon a man whose faculties were really suffering with nervous affections, body reduced, and mind unsettled. Is it unreasonable to ask if this very act, which I have so faintly drawn, is not sufficient to set a sound man on a wire edge and start anyone mad, furiously mad? This whole statement I most solemnly declare to be true. 
We are in Stanton, Virginia, uh, which is a small town in the Shenandoah Valley, population of about 26,000 people. It's a very historic town, has a lot of Civil War history. Uh, it's a growing town right now. Um, it thrives. It's actually listed in, I think, the top 20 of like best small towns in the United States. Really? Yeah. It's a cool little place. A lot of stuff going on here. Um, so, because you immediately talk, started talking about the history. One thing, mm -hmm. what I found so fascinating when I was looking uh, for my next podcast guest, you, mm -hmm. um, is that today we're going to be talking about paranormal stuff, but your sure. love of history. Mm -hmm. So like you just said, this very historical town, you can see just driving through all the buildings are, you know, seem to be at least a hundred years old. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, is so one thing I think is interesting when I'm doing these regional podcasts mm -hmm. is, um, when the town was founded, was there any, like anything of particular interest? Was it like, was there a certain industry here? Or, so we're in the Shenandoah mm -hmm. Valley. When, did it was a matter, really just a matter of expansion okay. from, from like Williamsburg on, you know, oh, okay. expanded out west. The town was founded in 1747. Wow. And there was a gentleman that put a plot here. Um, oh, here's my stomach, excuse me, uh, called Williams, William Beverly's Plot, uh, Beverly's Plot. And that was as early as 1742. Uh, the town, which was founded in 1747, and it was actually officially incorporated in 1761. Okay. Um, so it has a lot of lot of history there, and there was a lot of expansion out west toward the time. At the time, Thomas Jefferson's made many visits over here, and it's believed that he's had some input on some of the architect architecture and stuff within the town. Mm. Um, yeah. So well, that was a good start with it. Super interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've been I've been in 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 reading about where we've moved to. So we lived up in by Front Royal. Okay. But now we've moved to uh, Pocahontas County, West Virginia. All right. It's been fascinating reading historical books, how like those Allegheny Mountains that were over the top of, were only like five minutes into West Virginia. Like those were like the, the mounds that held back mm -hmm. like the European push for mm -hmm. a super long time. It's kind of fascinating to be right over the top of those mountains. Oh, indeed it is. Yeah, it is. There's so much to it. And um, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm originally from Baltimore and I've lived here now for 50 years. I love the town. I love the history with it. I love the layout. I love the architecture here. I also like to, because it's very in a very convenient location right in the middle of the valley, it's easy to access other locations. Like if you want to go to the big city, Baltimore, D.C., you're two, three hours away. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to the beach, Virginia Beach. If you want to go to the mountains, I mean, the mountains are right here at you. Mm -hmm. They were venturing to West Virginia. And there's so much history, not just here, but just around, too, mm. the whole area. Mm. Okay, well— Let's just get right in to one of like the reason I'm so excited to talk to you. Okay. So um, back when my buddy was at JMU, uh, James Madison University, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'd come to visit and uh, always I'd kind of like take, like kind of register when you pass by on the highway of, of, of Stanton, this insane abandoned looking building. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know very little about it mm -hmm. other than, it was some kind of mental facility. Some I don't uh, a lunatic asylum. And I don't, what, what would be the right word in its own time period? It would have been called a lunatic asylum. The buildings that you're witnessing are actually the Dejarnets, and it's called Dejarnet Sanatorium. It's basically an extension 
of the original Western State Lunatic Asylum, which was founded here in town in 1828. So there were mo- so the There's main multiple buildings. See? The two buildings you see from the interstate, that's the D. Jarnett Sanatorium. Okay. And that was actually put in place in 1932. It was just built as an extension to add on to Western State Lunatic Asylum. But yeah, so it's a long history with Western State uh, Asylum as well as D. Jarnett Sanatorium. Well, so, you know, obviously this is such like a, mythic topic in in the paranormal or or the abandoned asylums Mm -hmm. so like first like could we just hear some history about this asylum um you started telling me on the phone can we compare it to others like during that time period mid 1800s late 1800s early 1900s um what was going on at these asylums. Okay. Any, well, anything you know about it. was it. established as the state's first lunatic asylum um, here. And like I said, it dates back to 1828. And if you look back at some of the asylums that were created, there was to deal with mental illness. Hmm. Um, people that, you know, back in that time would have been declared imbeciles, you know, hmm. or, or things like that. But the thing with it, and it's, it's, a, it's the trend for all the asylums throughout the United States is treatment toward mental illness was very primitive dating back to the 1800s, even to the early 1900s. And a lot of it was extreme. You know, I think it's a way of kind of finding your way through it, things that would, that would work. Um, we have seen some asylums, others around the country, where there were situations of patient abuse, you know, on purpose, where those locations were shut down. And that wasn't the case with Western State Lunatic Psalm. Actually, Western State still operates today. There were many fine people that worked there. But yes, they did in their history, they did primitive treatments, just like any other asylum, because that was the norm back in. And when I say primitive treatments, I'm talking about, well, even stuff that could be used today, like electroshock therapy, Mm. uh, insulin-induced comas, hydrotherapy, and of course, we go into lobotomies and stuff like that. All this stuff was done at, at Western State Lunatic Asylum. And so, what is a lobotomy? They like cut your skull open. Like, what do they do? They like they. Well, they go into your 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 brain through your orbital. What do you mean through your eye? Yeah, through your eye. And then they they think that by prod at that time period they thought by like prodding different things that. Yeah, well, and basically erasing your memory and stuff like that. It it, it you know, but wow. uh, yeah. It's pretty much a, like a reset, so to speak. That's a but they, you know okay. the, the, it it doesn't pan out well. Oh my god, it doesn't. Um, yeah, I don't know why. You know, that's the thing. It's it's just a whole mystery with it. Was what was the objective to 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 the final outcome with that? Was it just something experimental and you know people used as guinea pigs, lab rats? Yeah. You know, what was the purpose behind it? What was the ultimate goal? You know, I think with well, a lot know, of me, you, you're talking about a complete wipe and reset. You know, like further back, like medieval times, they would do the um, trepanning, mm-hmm. where they would drill a hole at the top of your skull because mm-hmm. they thought it would be like release pressure. Release, and release pressure, the demon. yes. So it seems like a slow evolution from trepanning to lobotomies. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the other ones you said? You said water, what? Well, there was uh, insulin induced comas. You know, they would shoot you up with that and see how do you react. There was hydrotherapy where they'd put you in a tub of ice. You know, mm. ice water, very cold. See how you react to that. Thinking that would be treatment that you know with mental illness. Well, yeah, that's like, fascinating because there's a trend right now with ice baths mm-hmm. with for for um, anxiety and immune boosting. Sure. With, with, and so that's kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. That and that's how it ties in. You know, I mean, just the, just those reactions and stuff with that, and of course, electroshock therapy and stuff. You know. Um, how did that? I don't. You know, I know what it is, but how? Like, what were the details there? Like, how did that work? They just tie you up to a chair or something, and pretty much to a chair, you know. And then it, what? 
and well, we'll go with the with the pad grids and stuff, and and place them on your chest. You okay. Know, and then you get a, a a shock of the electro, you know, from wherever it's coming to purpose. I'm not too familiar with that, but it was just a jolt. You know, depending, I guess they would ramp those up, you know, depending on what, how much voltage they want to put it into you, mm. you know. Um, you see a lot of that just with, like, with heart conditions or two, to re-jump, restart, re, you know, mm. um, regenerate your heart or whatnot if you're having heart failure. But, mm. I mean, the whole same thing, too, with mental illness. You know, they put it to your chest or they do it with your head as well, mm. you know. Man, that's pretty wild stuff. It so is. it wasn't, so the... The one here was not by no means no, notorious. It was kind of average. In that was average. Period. That was that was the average treatment for that time. For that time period, that would have went on at every asylum in the country. Okay, you know. Now the thing that where this starts to get a little bit dark here is because it it, it ventures into eugenics, you know. And um, Djarnett Sanatorium was named after Doctor Joseph Djarnett, who was a head psychiatrist at Western State Lunatic Asylum. Late 1800s, I think he served all the way up to the early 1940s, and he was a big proponent of eugenics. He believed in part of that was believed in creating a perfect human race. And wow. So people with any kind of mental deficiency, whatnot. But it went further than that. It was really to eradicate or, or get rid of what they just deemed as a lower form of society. And what I mean by that is, you could be biracial, mm. you could be an addict, you could be a drunk, you could be a bum. A lot of times. If you ended up in a facility like that, especially with a eugenics program, there's a good chance you're going to be sterilized and wow. against your will. And so they did that at Western State Lunatic Asylum. They actually performed about eight to 9,000 sterilizations. And I'm told that this went on all the way up to the early 1970s. Now, D. Jarnett oh died in the early God. 50s, and he's actually buried in Highland County. I'm not sure exactly the name of the cemetery, but he... Um, he was very adamant about it at the time. And he was actually, the time of, during his reign would have been, you know, about the time of Hitler yeah. uh, and World War II and all that. And he, Similar ideas. Yeah, similar ideals. Actually, it, it went on here and Hitler became infatuated with it, the whole idea of sterilization. And, of course, he took it a step further with extermination. <laughs> but I know one time, D. Jarnan, he's on record of him saying he was very disgusted that Germany was sterilizing more people than we were here in the United States. And oh, he went on to make a statement God. that they were beating us at our own game. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, some good stuff. So do you? how did they actually do it? Was it an injection or an operation or what was happening? I'm not 100% sure on that. I probably would have been a variety of different things, maybe an injection, maybe surgery. You know, I, I don't know all the details of that, unfortunately. <laughs> I just strange to think about it. <laughs> I, that is brutal. So how would one? how would one in that time period end up there? Was it mm – -hmm. so you were saying – See, I was surprised to hear you say bums because I thought that these were very like upper class things. No. It was. I mean, that was intense for the, how do I put it? That was the purpose of it originally when it started. It was to treat, treat the wealthy, the people that mm. were brought there were needed help. But they ended in, you know, with all kinds of people. You could drop somebody off there. If you would have family member and you didn't want them around anymore, they, you know, embarrassed your family or humiliated you or whatever, and you didn't see anything, you just drop them off there and they were there. You know, once you're there, you're there. And, of course, being how with the whole sterilization thing, if you're considered a burden to society, you know, the idea was they're not going to let that 
multiply or create more of a burden. Right. See what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Dark those are some ideas. of the things. It just, it, it went beyond just a mental illness because it could be all kinds of things. You could have epilepsy or whatever, you know, uh, to be in there and not be able to function properly. And again, it goes back to the part of it with the, the, the white human race. Uh, if you follow anything with Germany and Hitler and stuff like that, the fair skin, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, you know, the perfect race. And that's what Hitler was after to create. And yeah. this guy was kind of on the, exactly the same Yeah, we trajectory. were doing it here in the United States or as early as the, the late 1800s, 1870s, wow. 1880s. This was starting to, you know, starting to come around. And then you get into the early 1900s, and there's a big movement in the United States to do this. You know, there's all kind of information you can find out on eugenics online um, where, you know, where all it's taking place. We have actually, as a paranormal group, we've investigated several asylums. Uh, one, Penhurst, which is in Spring City, Pennsylvania, and they had a huge eugenics program there. They did the same thing with sterilizations and whatnot. But they had a, a, a real bad problem with abuse of patients. Mm. People come in there and they get those jobs. First, they're short-staffed. Then the state give them very little to work with. You bring in too many people. You have more people, patients, than you can handle. So there's a stress on the staff there. And then you bring a few people in there that realize they can abuse power because you have power over somebody who might be incompetent or what or have mental deficiency. So there was a, a strong case of abuse there. And eventually what they did in 1988, they went in and shut it down, closed it down, and moved the people, surviving people in there to better facilities and locations. And I think some even got uh, reimbursed funds or whatnot for damages done. Hmm. Not 100% sure on that, but you can look it up. Were people like sexually abusing them or what? Yeah, it was sexually abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, all of it. Horrific. Horrific. I mean, this is like... This serious nightmare yeah. level stuff. Yep. I mean, I've had, um, I won't say too much about it, but I have had a, a friend who's, uh, I was around um, when his wife was in like uh, having a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was very scary just to be around this person because they were so, they were somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It was like they were possessed by something. It was mm -hmm. extremely terrifying to be mm. around so i can't imagine what it's like to be going through something like that mm -hmm. and then i guess when you finally come back to planet earth if that ever happens you're just like in some facility like that yeah one thing to clear up and you can go back and edit this if you want when you're talking about the electric shock therapy and i started immediately with the chest stuff with the, the heart but it's basically the same thing it's just focusing on the head with a, mm. the cap and the brace and it's really basically just to stimulate to, to charge to get a reaction. Mm. You know, same thing like with doing your heart, like I was explaining earlier, it's to jumpstart your heart or to jumpstart anything in there. Mm. You know? Did it ever I'm work? Not, <laughs> I'm not sure on that. <laughs> I just cringe at the thought of it. So I'm not real, real knowledgeable on, on the treatments and the detail and stuff mm -hmm. like that as far as what, you know. But I, I know those were practiced here. I know they were practiced. We've, we've actually, and I don't, I don't know where the photographs would be, but I have, but I have come across some of, of patients in tubs at Western State Lunatic Asylum. Wow. This would have been like 1930s, 1940s. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, yeah, when you really get into it, you think about it, it's just amazing. Um, and you were saying there are all these unmarked graves? There is, yeah. There's actually a cemetery, which is behind the original Western State Lunatic Asylum. You go up over a little hill and just down a small road, and you will run into a cemetery. It's got about 3,000, maybe 3,500 graves in there, and about 85 to 90% of them have no name on them. Each stone is just a cement slab, a blank cement slab, slab, excuse me, and they run row after row. 
Uh, it is said, I don't know any, I don't know anything where it's documented. It's said that they had wooden plaques on every name, but they would have long since rotted away. But I have, you know, you go in there, it's just, it's something out of Sleepy Hollow. It looks so sad mm. and depressing and morbid. There's a few graves in there that have, you know, this, a, a typical stone like you would, you know, imagine. But for the most part, they're just cement slabs. Mm. I could show you a picture if you'd like to see what they look like. <laughs> yeah, after us. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. So, like, the movie um, Shutter Island, wasn't that um, by mm -hmm. um, Scorsese? Is yeah. that based in fact, or is, what is that? Uh, yeah, some of it, yeah, it would okay. have been. They would have done, you know, not, I mean, typical Hollywood, there's some things that are astray, yeah. but yeah, still the, the moral and the thought process is the same. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, really they would have done those those things, and they're referenced in that movie, such as things like a little lobotomy and all that. Hmm. Yeah, the thing with the cemetery, though, there's a combination of um, patients buried there that would be um, patients from the early, mid, late to 1800s, even early 1900s, as well as prisoners, because part of the buildings there, they were actually used as a as a penitentiary mm. in the mid-1900s, all the way up to the 70s and 80s. I can actually remember driving by there from the, the avenue going by, and there was one column that had an extension with several levels. And they were like patios out there, but they were fenced and, you know, caged in. But inmates could sit out there and watch the traffic go by. And they would sit out there and wave to you as you go by, mm. you know. And that was I was just back in the nineteen eighties or maybe early nineties. I'm not sure exactly when the prison penitentiary shut down, but mm. yeah. So it served multiple purposes. The Western State Lunatic Asylum. It's a combination of many buildings back there. Yeah, the original um, administration building now has actually been converted into an inn. It's called Blackburn Inn. It's kind of a luxury resort. The inn. original sanitarium. The original sanatorium, sanatorium. administration building. Administration building has been turned into a resort. Yep, it has. It's I mean, called Blackburn Inn, and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous the way hey, the money they have put into it and, and restored it. I mean, if you're if you're here during the day, you need to go visit it. Just are normal by. people going there? Well, people go there all the time. Stay there, spend the night. Now, but are uh, they spending their the night there on purpose because they know it's kind of like spooky and weird, or is well, it I just think normal? I, it's a combination of both. It's a combination. You have people that like to do stuff like that, like myself. They're going there knowing what it was you know, hopeful to have an experience or just experience it themselves. And then you have other people that's just a beautiful resort. They go there and, and you know, enjoy the, the things that they offer mm -hmm. uh, on the grounds or whatnot. They provide all kind of entertainment, music, performances, things like that. It's it's an expensive inn. I think the last I heard, it's about $300 a night to stay there. Uh, and that's basic, uh, that and up. You know, when I talk 300, 300 and more. I mean, that is kind of bizarre. It is. So now <laughs> that main building from the highway, that thing has been abandoned for decades, mm -hmm. and you can't really you can't get in there. Are it, you talking about the Western State or the Djarnet, the one the that you see from the highway? From the Djarnet the buildings, yeah, it's two of them, and they set side by side. They are uh, off limits. Uh, the Frontier, the American Frontier Culture Museum, actually owns the property. Really, they're a historic location here in town, and they own the property, and they are very protective of it. And some of the reasons being is it. There are safety and liability issues with the buildings. There's asbestos in there. There's some areas that aren't structurally sound. You know, you could just fall through. There's other areas where they no longer have keys to certain things. So if you were to go in a certain area and maybe a door shut and locked behind you, you may be in there for a significant amount of time. <laughs> there's other things with there's homeless people that are in and out of there from along the highway. There are addicts that go in there and shoot up and do different things and drugs. So there's a whole combination of things that kind of go on there. So it's definitely off limits. What they do now, though, with people that trespass on the property, and they have signs up and everything, but if you trespass, it 
The last I heard, it's about a $2,500 fine mm. with 20 hours community service and then mm. you pay court cost. Mm. Um, when we were, and I don't know if I mentioned that, we were very fortunate uh, several years ago, we got permission to do ghost tours on the property. We could never go inside the buildings, but they gave us permission to do tours on the property. And what we would do is, um, which was a challenge because they would allow us to do one tour every Saturday in October, just the month of October, but it had to be during the day. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's pretty hard to do a ghost tour during the day, but we would yeah. set this thing up. We'd have a two-hour slot from 4 to 6 p.m., and we'd walk people up to the front of the buildings. And what I would do is I would put a tour guide up on the steps as you would go into the buildings, which they had kind of semi-fenced fenced off. But anyways, I would put a tour guide up there with a microphone. And then down below, you had sort of like a mini parking lot. It expanded out as a blacktop area. And the, the people, the customers could just stand there and kind of spread out and mill around while the guide's telling the stories, and they could take photographs. Well, the last season we did it, it was popular. We did it for four years, but the last season we did it every Saturday, we were over 100 people per tour. Mm. The last tour we did there before everything shut down, we had 175 people on one tour, and that's at 15 bucks a pop. It's almost a theatrical event. It was. It's a huge interest. Well, when you talk about DiGiorno, the first thing that pops up with people and resonate, you know, with hauntings and stuff is treatment of mental illness. You know, all these places, a lot of of, uh, asylums have activity. Um, but people, they're fascinated by that, the history of it. And then you talk about the paranormal and we had people coming from all over to these Mm. tours. Um, and one of the things that was shut it down, it was very successful. We were doing very well with it. But once we got into the public eye and the media started covering us, the break-ins and the vandalism went off the charts, off the charts. And so they eventually said they had enough. They are desperately wanting to be rid of the property now. They would like the buildings to be taken down because mm-hmm. it is kind of like many people think, feel it as a black eye on Stanton, mm-hmm. things that went on there. And to date, there have been like seven or eight proposals, bids that have been put on it, and every one have fallen through. I don't know why, whether it's finances mm-hmm. or just what it, the, the enormous cost, too, to take the buildings down. There have been rumors about a, a shopping mall going in there, and no. we heard a movie theater, and yet they still stand. Well, the Frontier Culture Museum is really, really cool. So it'd be it amazing is. if they could do something with that. The, you know, the, the Frontier Culture Museum, just to do a quick thing about it, they have they have literally taken uh, old buildings from Europe and Ireland and Germany and, mm-hmm. and taken them apart and rebuilt them here. And so they're actual, they're not reproductions, they're actual old buildings from Europe. And then they have, uh, you know, they're trying to show off, show the entire uh, frontier culture. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. It's, it's a awesome. wonderful experience. It's a must do if you're in Stanford. It's awesome. You have to see it. Living it is. history. Um, but the thing, the thing with it is, and you know, I had actually my team, Black Raven Paranormal, and I had went in there and talked to John Avoli, who was a curator to museum at the time. He he's actually served as mayor of Stanton at one time, but we went in there and talked to him about a proposal about doing something with the buildings and being able to take tour groups inside to clean it up, you know, or possibly branded out for paranormal investigations or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he just wasn't on board with it. Uh, and the other thing is how he put it to us, when he finally would give his consent, it would be about investing money to do it, the funds, and then the possibility that once we did that, still somebody could come along and bid on it and wipe it out from under our feet. So the cost involved with it, at that, it, it just never come to <laughs> come to happen, actually. Mm-hmm. And so it went by the wayside. Um, so have you guys been able to do an investigation? No. There? I've you offered know. him. I've offered him a thousand dollars. I even thought I'd tell him I'd sign a waiver. Everybody in my team would let me have it one night. I give you a thousand, two thousand dollars. No, could go. And I will tell you too. 
because once we did ghost tours there, and they did, you know, they did allow us to do that. But once we did ghost tours there, and all this information's up on our website, I started getting calls from paranormal shows on TV. One of those being Ghost Asylum with the Tennessee Wraith Chasers, and the other was Destination Fear. Mm. Called me about, hey, is there a way we can get in there to do a show? And mm. and and I would always tell them, I'd give them the phone number to the Frontier Culture Museum. I tell them who to speak with. Wish them the best of luck, which they had none. And then. <laughs> And then I would tell them, you didn't talk to me. Because mm. at the time, we were kind of still in the th- mix with the tours a little bit. Mm. And I didn't want to do anything to kind of rock at. So you didn't mm. get, you didn't talk to me, but just that's who you approach. Mm. Never went anywhere. Mm. And I pretty much knew that because I knew John Avoli and I knew how, I knew what he, his opinion of or thought of mm. was doing that. He just was not on board with it. Uh, wow. He was actually seemed amazed at what we do as a group anyways when I was telling him, yeah, we travel around the country and we pay fees to go investigate all these cool locations like penitentiaries, asylums. But we, we you know, we pay money to go to these locations and investigate it. And he's like, you mean in the dark? You really like to go? Yeah, we do. We like to do that, John. It's it's fun. And we we do. And we enjoy the history and all. And, but and we never could get them on board. And so now the buildings, it's the same thing. They just sit there. Yeah. And and actually, he had told me a, a couple funny stories the last time I had talked to him, and that's been some years ago. He told me of one story that they had busted someone in there that was actually living in the facilities, and uh, a homeless person, I guess, and had a phone, somehow had access to a phone, and was offering tours in there and making money. No. Tours and tour, you know, taking people around. Well, they got him out of there. And then there was another story he told me, the one building to the right where there's an entrance and exit, and you can see the doorways there. They've actually got piled up along the doorways, which looks like two big mounds of dirt. That's actually manure. And he was telling me there was people still digging through that to get in there. People, you know, breaking in or you pull a board off a window, but they were digging through the manure to get inside the building, which I thought oh, that's pretty Why is pretty there funny. manure there? They, they put, put that there to keep people out. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was the reason. That was the purpose of it. They put two mounds of manure about oh my 15 God. feet high. So I've got a quick story. So I used to live up in Brooklyn and Mm -hmm. I was a filmmaker at the time and we got a job, kind of a lame job to Mm -hmm. do a documentary for a hospital up in Poughkeepsie. And up in Poughkeepsie, there's an enormous uh, mental institute. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what the hell the right word is. Psychiatric Institute or whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It was abandoned. And so I had to go up there to location scout for this film job. I went by myself without my team. And I was like, well, I want to go check out that abandoned psychiatric facility. Mm-hmm. So I tried to, I, I went, you know, I could kind of see through the trees that there was some kind of guard around there. So I went, drove all the way around, went through a suburb, kind of snuck in through the, through the suburban woods. And then you just step into what felt like I was in a movie or a dream mm-hmm. because it, it was in, it's an entire complex. Mm-hmm. So it was just like me alone during the day um, in an entire abandoned city is what it felt like mm-hmm. with all the windows with plants growing out of it. And it was absolutely surreal. And um, all the doors had been, you know, they put a big wooden boards on all the doors so no one can get in them. Mm-hmm. But then I walked around and I saw that one of those wooden boards had been hacked open. So there was just like a black hole mm-hmm. on this door. And I thought of my friend, this uh, girl, Catherine from Richmond. She's really into abandoned buildings and stuff like that. And I just thought of her and I was like, if she heard me say that I was too scared to go in there by myself, she would call me like such a coward. <laughs> so I was like, I got to go in. So I, so I crawled through this black hole. Mm-hmm into the into the psychiatric facility by myself and i'm walking through the you know through the the corridors 
And what started to make me really nervous was starting to see like squatter stuff, like bedding and, you know, oh, yeah. like homeless bedding stuff. And then I was like, I shouldn't be here in too long. Mm -hmm. So I left, Not no, didn't feel any hauntings or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was definitely extremely surreal. Mm -hmm. But um, like the next week or so, when I went up to do the job, mm -hmm. I told the our clients, like they were young people who worked for the hospital. I was like, hey, you know that? abandoned psychiatric facility. I was like, I went there the other day. I was like walking around by myself and they're like, are you serious? I was like, yeah. And they're like, um, a few weeks ago, a woman was murdered in there. And I was just like, oh, okay. All right. Well, maybe I shouldn't be doing that yeah. other than a $2,000 fine. Probably not the smartest move in the world. Yeah. Well, I tell you too, with, and that's the same thing similar with DJ Arnett, like with the homeless people in there and there are addicts and going stuff things in there. One thing John Avoli did tell me, and this was back years ago, he said the police don't really check it as often as mm -hmm. they should. And he said, honestly, he said, for all I know, he said somebody could have crawled up in there when it's really cold and just died somewhere. You know, when, you know, when we're talking bitter cold, oh I mean, they don't check it enough to, <laughs> to know. Oh my God. Um, but it, it, it's, it's fascinating. So uh, let's, from here, let's get into some paranormal sure. activity. Mm -hmm. So what should we well, I guess let's stay on asylums. Mm -hmm. You visited. Now, you have done paranormal investigations of other asylums. Yes, absolutely. I've been doing it for 22 years, and as a paranormal group, which has been together since 2005, we have investigated a lot of locations all over the country and been to some that have had really activity off the charts. And I've got to say, through my personal experiences, all the locations I've been to, and I've been to a lot in 22 years, asylums rank top on the list. They are tops. We've had more activity captured, whether it be audio, video, photographs, more personal experiences at asylums than any other place. Any other place. Some of the asylums we've had the, the pleasure of investigating. We have done Rolling Hills Lunatic Asylum up in Bethany, New York. We have done Penhurst Asylum in Spring City, Pennsylvania. Right here, fairly local, we've done St. Albans Lunatic Asylum down in Radford, Virginia which is, is a nice place to visit. Um, it's actually about a three-hour drive from here. And we've, had, we've uh, been there about three or four times. And all these places, we have come back with really interesting data. Um, I will tell you personally, for me, I've not had a lot of really earth-moving moments in 22 years. I've never seen an apparition. Most of the personal experiences I've had involve audio, where I've been alone in a location, all alone, I've been running my audio recorder, asking a set of questions based on the research I've done. And <laughs> I've heard a response in real time as if someone's standing right behind me. I'm hearing it just like where we'd be talking right now. If I was down here talking by myself and I'm running my recorder there and it's recording, you know, and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, I'm asking my set of questions like, do you know a man named such and such? And then you hear a, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> did I just hear that? <laughs> Now, I'll tell you one, and I'll share that clip with you here a little bit later. I will go to a, um, an area called Fort Mifflin. Uh, it's a revolutionary war fort, pre-revolutionary war fort in Philadelphia. I'm quite fond of it. We've had a lot of evidence and data collected there. 
And I've been there several times. But one time in particular, I was alone and I had went in a powder magazine. Powder magazines were ammo stuff would have been stored, like gunpowder or whatnot. So it was usually like the dome-type brick buildings. And it has an echo when you go in there. But anyways, I had went in there. I was all alone. Just decided I was going to sit down up against the wall on the floor and go through my line of questioning I wanted to ask. I had done some research as far as prisoners and different soldiers that had been there. And, you know, I thought I would, that would be a good starting point. So I sit down. I got my recorder, my audio recorder running. And I'm also plugged in. I've got hearing enhancers in in my ears, Eric Buds, to help elevate any audio around, so enhance it. So perhaps I could hear if someone tried to communicate with me. So I'm doing that, and I'm running through all my questions, going through everything, pulling out the whole arsenal. And what I do, I have very strict protocols and procedures with, with audio. I'll ask a question. I'll allow about a 20 to 30, maybe 40-second pause to see if there's an answer. If not, I move on to the next question. Generally, with sessions, I'll keep them pretty short. Would you have known a prisoner named John Rosen? And no reply. Um, then I go on and I move on to another name. I might say something like that. You know, how long have you how long have you been here? Um, what was it like here? You know, did you actually did you fight? Were you a soldier? What was your rank? If you were a soldier, were you a private? Were you know, uh, what time frame are we talking? What, what war? You know, it could have been revolution. It could have been civil war too, because this fort was actually in existence from as early as seventeen the seventeen seventies all the way up till nineteen hundred. So you have a variety of wars in which it was involved in. So I'm trying to get a bearing on all that information, uh, I do different techniques with audio. Like I said, I generally like to keep the session short, like a two minute session, and then repeat, stop it, repeat. Reason being, it's much easier to review. And then the other thing with it is the longer you run your recorder, there's more possibility for contamination. And we have issues already. The recorders are sense enough. They will pick up your stomach growling, you clearing your throat, all that. And it can sound like a voice. The only reason I know with now, because I've done it long enough, I can distinguish between those sounds. And we like to tag things as they happen. So in other words, if you and I were doing an audio session here, and your stomach's growling, I'm going to say that's Philip's stomach growling. So it's documented on a recorder. So it's not fooling me later. Uh, anyways, that's some of the part we go through. Some of the techniques I like to use, use with a line of questioning, I will go strictly with research and ask those questions. Uh, there's other times where I'll intentionally get something wrong to see if it's corrected. Um, the other thing I will do too is I like to use trigger objects. I'll do things with anything from a toy for a child to Civil War era music for Civil War soldiers. Anything I can do to kind of make a connection with someone on that time level or time frame. I try to refrain from using current day language like I do would now because they're not going to understand that. Such as words like, oh, that's really cool. Now he's going to know what the heck I'm talking about from that time era. You, you get what I'm saying? Just an example of that. So I'm pretty pretty particular with how I do the sessions, you know, I line it up, I, you know, and I throw a lot of stuff out. So when I'm doing review, it better be pretty good or most of it's going in the trash. A lot of things with EVP and the audio work is you can get recordings, um, but the hardest part is being able to distinguish what's being said. You know, uh, we have different classifications for EVPs, which we call electronic voice phenomenon. A, it's crystal clear. That's the holy grail. You and I would both agree we understand exactly what's coming back across that recorder. Then there's class B. You know, you have a voice, but you might have one interpretation. I might have another. And then there's class C. You have a voice, but nobody can <laughs> decipher what's being said. Those are the ones that go in the trash. They're the most common that are captured. I do say, and I tell people this as far as my experiences with paranormal investigating, I do think audio evidence is some of the best and the easiest you can get. It is. You'd be surprised if you took an audio recorder, 
and you controlled the environment around you as best you could, asked a set of questions, especially if you can resonate with that person on that time level, some of the replies you might get. Sometimes you don't get anything. Sometimes you might go somewhere and it might be quiet. I don't think that necessarily makes a place not haunted. I think it's just maybe they chose not to speak with you that particular night, and who knows why. But I don't give up on something after just saying and going to a location one time and say, oh, it's not haunted. We didn't get anything. I don't believe in that. I think it's a good investigation. It's a series of investigations. And it's a lot of times, and I know through my experience, it's right time, right, right, right time, right place for everything. You know, you're there at the right time, and it just so happens. A lot of times with it, too, it can be very unexpected. You know, you're not expecting it. And going back to my story into the Powder Magazine, because that reply that I got in there was unexpected. I was going through my line of questioning, sitting there on the floor, asking everything I had researched. I was even starting to get things purposely wrong to see if they were corrected. Nothing. It's just as quiet as can be. Dead. No pun intended. But anyways, after about 20 minutes, I decide, well, I'm not hearing anything. And, I, you know, I would, I would like to. But anyways, I'm going to wrap it up. So I, I made the comment. I'm going to pack up and I'm, I'm leaving. And I kid you not, it was like five seconds later, I heard a, a very crisp, thank you. <laughs> and I scuffled. I was sitting on the floor and I literally... I just kind of, I was like, holy cow. And I, I knew exactly what was said. And I replied, do you, I started laughing. I said, do you really want me to leave? And there was no reply, nothing. And so the next thing I'm thinking, my mind focuses to, oh gosh, I hope that's on the recorder. <laughs> and it was. I probably need to leave. Do you want me to leave? I probably need to leave. I heard that too. And I was like, that is so cool. That is so cool. Um, now, I've had that happen about... Uh, I'd say about five or six times in different situations where I've heard that voice. And for me, it's always a little unnerving when it's a child. I've had one experience where I did hear a child speak at a location. Uh, where I'm going with this, too, and as far as talking with evidence and data, and you were talking about asylums, uh, I had a lot of things happen at Pennhurst, particularly Pennhurst Asylum in Spring City, uh, Pennsylvania. The very first time I visited there, I had three really incredible experiences there. Um, and I'm, I'm, like I said, when you don't have a lot in 20-some years and you have three in one location the very first time you're there, uh, it was pretty memorable. Now, Pennhurst Asylum, if anybody's into you know looking up asylums, that's the premier one if you want to look it up. All the paranormal investigators go there. They do a lot. Uh, and it has such a brutal history with it as far as like we were talking about the treatments and stuff and just the abuse that went on there so much to learn and know and eventually like i said they did shut it down now it's available to groups and it's a series of many buildings and actually with a lot of these buildings they have tunnels that connect them long tunnels uh, that you you know and they make more and more available each each time for groups so you started out with just one building now they have two or three and then access to some of the tunnels now today the asylum is shrouded in ghost tales and reports of paranormal activity as of 2010, one building was partially reopened as the Pennhurst Asylum Haunted House. Some visitors claim to hear voices, shrieks, and murmurs of pain from former patients, residents, and inmates of the facility. The hauntings are terrifying for multiple reasons. 
Aside from typical fear of the paranormal, the ghost of Pennhurst serve as a collective reminder of just how cruel society can be toward its own members. According to paranormal researchers, Pennhurst Asylum is one of the most haunted places in Pennsylvania, if not the United States. And Black Raven Paranormal has investigated at Pennhurst Asylum on three occasions with incredible experiences, personal experiences, data and evidence. And now we'd like to share some of the investigation footage and experiences with you. But the very first time we went there, it was probably about six years ago, and at the time it was just a, a building called the Mayflower Building. And it was the building itself was shaped in the form of an L, and you had three floors and a basement. So you had a total of four floors. And what I did with the group was I, we had an eight-man team, and I had two per floor, and you'd rotate. You'd be on a floor for so many hours, and you'd rotate up to the next floor. And that's how we did it, ran an eight-hour investigation. Well, I was working with a female investigator that night, and we were actually up on the third floor and um one of the things she had started the end of one hallway and i had at the other we were going to meet in the middle the middle of an l and so we're working our way around and um i was carrying a a, a video recorder and i had it on a bracket set i had created where it had an illuminator on top of the camera to see in complete darkness i had an audio recorder on there a couple other little gadgets so it's kind of heavy maybe 10 pounds or so and i'm I'm getting tired of carrying it around video in the halls and and the doorways and different rooms and so i just i thought well it would really be nice if i could just put this on a flat thing let it record and then i'd wander off and you know i'd be focusing really on the entire hallway one of the things we were told at the end of the hallway there had been shadow figures seen in videotapes so i thought well that would be great i'll just set this thing on a chair hit record let it do its thing and i'll peel off into a room or two and do some other things so i'm doing that and as i put the I found a chair and I put it on a flat chair and I walked around the chair and I just happened to glance back and I looked at that camera and I kid you not, I seen that thing lift up in the air and slam down on that chair like, <laughs> and I, again, I laughed like, did I just see that? And it was so loud that the investigator I was working with down in the other hallway heard it and she yelled down there, what was that? I said it was my my damn camera just lifted up and slammed down. And so my mind was trying to rashly explain it. I thought, oh, man, it wasn't level. It just fell. You know, Joe, I'm checking the chair to see if there was a bolt or anything. It's on it, you know, and nothing. It was just flat. Something picked it up and slammed it down. Plus, the button, the record button, had been shut off. It didn't capture on video. This is, like I was telling you, this is the area where I had my video camera lift up and slam down on a chair back in 2015. Had it right here, third floor, Mayfire Building, Penhurst Asylum. And I actually witnessed that with my own eyes. Pretty cool experience. That was the first thing, because I'd never seen an object like that move. And it literally, I did, I watched it. It looked like it lifted up and slammed right down on the on the chair. And it was loud. It was very loud. And then I'm thinking, gosh, I hope the camera's not damaged. And, of course, it wasn't. But that was the first thing. And then this, the next thing that happened, uh, I heard a disembodied voice. It just seemed like um, where we were going and working together. And she was picking up. The lady I was working with, she's a medium. So she was picking up on different things. And she said, I'm telling you, I'm picking up a lot of people here that are not really, they're, they're, lucid they're not they're not um how do I, what's the word i want to use uh just <laughs> i don't i can't think of the word my mind's blank 
that's just like they'd be in a trance, like not able to really communicate. And we would hear a lot throughout. You would hear something like a, hmm, hmm, And that, that, that went on several times throughout the night. And we got them on the recorder, too. Okay, kids. Children, we will see you soon. Come follow us. Okay, kids. Children, we will see you soon. Okay, kids. Children, we will see you soon. And that, that was that was probably, I guess, the second thing. And then the third thing, we actually, her and I, go down to the basement. Now, keep in mind, there's only two people on each floor. There's no one else. So we're in the basement, and we're in a little room, probably about the size of this room right here. And there's this children's room, and there's toys all around. There's a big chalkboard, all kind of neat little things. And I had brought a motion-activated doll I had got from the Spirit Halloween store, a trigger object, hoping a child would interact with it. You get close enough, it triggers it, and it'll go off and talk and do all this cool stuff. And I thought, well, we'll put a video camera on that and see if we can you know, get some interaction. So I'm doing that. I got a camera on the corner on that, focusing on it. And her and I, I'm standing up by this chalkboard and she's sitting on the floor about like you're sitting right now, about the same distance from me now. And we're chatting away. And you know, the little rubber balls you can get out of the gum machines, the super balls. It's about like that. Just a little ball like that. (laughs) One come bouncing right between us. It stopped right in the middle between us stopped right between her, right between I, and it just stopped right there. And I'm like, where did that come from? And I'm like looking all around. I don't know. And then I'm thinking, the next thing I'm thinking is, I would have the camera over here on a doll baby that's nothing's going on. And here comes a rubber ball and stops right between us. That would be my luck. But yeah, I was like, wow. Uh, and there's nobody down there with us. There's nobody. It's just her and I. And that ball, I don't know where it come from, but it just did. It went right between us and it stopped right between us. It's just a gentle roll. Like if somebody just flicked it with your finger. And I'm like, wow. Now I'll tell you, that's interesting. And, and, uh, it's exciting. I would have liked to have gotten some of those things on video, but it didn't happen that way. Now I've been back to the asylum, Penner's Asylum, on two other occasions, and I've never had, I've not achieved that level of activity since then. You know, it's like I said, a lot of times, right, right time, right place. You're just there, and it happens. You know, again, sometimes when you least expect it. What's your name? It's creepy. creepy. Get a bad feeling. I mean, those are some pretty great experiences. What do you think a ghost is? Well, my personal feeling, I think there's there's a lot of different feel, theories out there, but at least my personal belief is it's the after being of someone who's passed away. It's just a different realm, a spiritual realm. That's my belief. Are they stuck? Or th- or is it can a ghost be anyone that's ever died just returning from Well, I think there's several theories as to to why they could be stuck. There there could be I I look at it and we explain this somewhat on our ghost tours a little bit. I think there's several reasons why if someone passes and why they don't move on to the next level. I think sometimes you are trapped. Uh, I think in some cases and we see that with civil war battles or something if you're killed instantly and not aware you're dead. You know, you hear one minute and poof, you're gone. Something takes you out just like that. There's you could walk, you literally walk out into the road, get hit by a truck, not see it coming. You know what I'm saying? You're here a minute, one minute and gone. So, oh, so I'm very much into psychology and like Jungian psychology. Mm-hmm. So I guess what you're saying there is that if your consciousness is unaware of your death, then set, there's a trip, you think there might be a trip up right there. Exactly. 
That is absolutely fascinating. Exactly. I do. I do believe that. And then there's other things, theories that we talk about, too, in regards to someone not moving on. If you do pass and you know you've passed, it's very hard to give up something. Maybe it could be a personal attachment to a loved one, a way of life, something you know and familiar with, and you don't want to leave that. You stay with it. You stay there on that location. And then there is a thing about, I've had somebody throw up about being in purgatory or something like that. Mm -hmm. You're trapped in a situation. You're trapped in an environment Mm -hmm. that's kind of maybe almost doomed as your hell, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've had that theory floated out there. And another thing, too, we throw out there, just just food for thought is, you know, when someone passes, maybe they're afraid of Judgment Day. What lies beyond? You know, where am I going? So they won't go. They don't go. Man, um, I know it blows your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's so, it's all so thought provoking. Um, well, you know, there's different beliefs too. I just find it just in communicating with people with different religions. I've, you know, I've had people that are friends that are, are very religious, and and one of the things that, at least my personal belief, growing up, I believe when you die, you you're in a holding place. You're waiting. I know some people believe when you die, you either go directly to heaven or hell. I don't know. Nobody really knows. You know. But I know people that think that way. I'm not one of them. I think more you're in a holding area. I think you are around an environment, another realm, another plane, until Judgment Day does come. What, that's based on the, my upbringing. What does your medium friend think is going on? Well, you know, that, that's funny because she had brought up at the time, she thought with the purgatory thing, you know, that you could be sentenced or doomed to a hell depending on, you know, hmm. those situations. That would be kind of like your hell. Hmm. Let's say you had killed somebody in a certain area and you were confined to that area. And we have investigated places where, you know, we've had the killer interact, and it's kind of like the whole same thing just keeps repeating itself. You know what I'm saying? That environment, so to speak. So there's a theory, and I've talked about another paranormal episode that, and I've wondered this, that you're actually, that there's something going on that we don't understand yet. You know, at one point, we didn't know how to harness electricity. We didn't really know what that is. Mm -hmm. So there's, maybe there's something going on where it can record something like mm-hmm. a high energy can be recorded and because there is these themes with ghosts of like a loop the same thing happens mm-hmm. like a recording yeah you're talking, you're talking about residual haunts yes that uh-huh. that concept yeah and i believe that too that's another thing with hauntings they go on you know you have intelligent ones where they can interact with you and mm. they can you know communicate with you in a variety of ways and then you have things that's just an imprint on the environment that something triggers it whether it be a date or something with the environment an elemental type thing could be the weather conditions could be all kind of things where that just happens at a specific time you 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 brought up an incredible concept of a killer being trapped mm -hmm. in there in the place it's like an eternal jail cell exactly like forever you were trapped in the place where your morality your morality was lost into this like and she brought act. that up we i know her and i had chatted on that a couple of times she had brought that up it was kind of a thought process with that you know we uh like i said we've investigated so many different locations but there was one in particular where that would have probably you know that would have been the thought uh it was a house out in iowa valeska iowa the house is called the valeska axe murder house this would have been early 1900s uh it's 1910 or 12 I don't remember the exact date on that, but there was a family of six murdered in the house. It was a, a father, a mother, uh, four kids, and then they had two overnight children spend the night with them on a Sunday evening after church. They were all found the next day. Uh, all of them had their face bashed in with an axe. Uh, the blunt end of the axe, except the father, he had, had the sharp end. What the thought and the process or the theory behind it is that they think somebody, just a deranged killer, hit up in the attic while they were at church, come down just out of general meanness and did it in the middle of the night. 
and they found them all the next day. The crime is unsolved to this day. The house is very active. It's been a lot of the shows that come across our radar, and we was like, wow, let's go out there and check it out. And so we did. Uh, we've investigated it on two occasions. We went all the way out there. Quite a long trip. <laughs> 22 hours if you drive, by the way. Um, and we did. We come out of there with some, some, some good audio out of there. And there was a, a feeling, too, that in the attic area that there was maybe something up there that wasn't, that wasn't good. And we actually had one investigator did get some scratch marks on his neck up there. Yeah. Um, that's the only time that I can think of during my time of paranormal investigating did we provoke, and that was up in that attic. And it was more about, I won't say doing it for the evidence and data, but it was just being angry at the thought of someone committing that kind of crime, especially against children. You're saying you guys were going into it with an adversarial feeling towards what if there was some kind of yeah if it was spirit. you know just to, that if it was something up there someone that had committed that crime i mean we weren't going to give them a lot of respect and right. that was from the mindset because i think it, it you know a crime like that it it bothers you um you know some of these kids that some of the children were as young as four years old you know mm -hmm. and to do that and it's unsolved to this day now there were theories and there were people that were, that were brought in questioned and even brought to trial but they were acquitted and so it's unsolved this day. And the only thing I'm incorrect when I get them so mixed up, if that happened in 1910 or 1912. Hmm. Well, um, that's okay. Early 1900s. Early 1900s. That's what I go with. And, um, you know, we've come out of there. And I will t I'll go back to, I had a personal experience there. And that's why I brought it up. It's one of the locations where I had uh, heard a disembodied voice. And I wasn't alone. Somebody else heard it. We were in the parlor of that house, myself and another investigator uh, named Michael Hoover. And we were down on the bottom level, and he noticed he had an EMF meter that was just starting to spike, uh, detecting some kind of disturbance with an energy disturbance going on. I was actually sitting across from him in a chair, and I was changing batteries in my audio recorder, spending a fresh pair in there. And as I'm doing that, his meter spikes, and he makes the comment, my, my, my meter's it's, it's spiking, it's going off. And so he says, children, are you here with us? And I kid you, <laughs> I say that a lot, I kid you not. I heard a little girl go, yeah. And I just went, and he was looking right at me, and he's, "Did you hear that?" I said, "Yeah, that was a that was a little kid." And he says, "Yeah." And the next thing I'm thinking, "Oh God, I don't have my recorder routed. And uh, but we were lucky. We had a lady that was in our group, and she was actually upstairs at the time, and she had an audio recorder sitting there on the coffee table, and it caught it. It caught it. I was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's cool." <laughs> Man, that's pretty cool. So I've got. So I wonder. I have a handful of my own ghost experiences. I've told a lot of them on the podcast. What I'm finding interesting is it seems like different people get different people experience these ghosts, whatever the hell a ghost is. Mm -hmm. They experience it in their own unique way. Mm -hmm. Like you everything you've said today thus far, it's an an auditory experience. You're mm -hmm. hearing words. I've never had that. I've never seen anything, but mm -hmm. I, I've had friends who said they've as clear as day they're seeing a woman sit on a bench in the park in Richmond. Mm -hmm. um, for me, for my little sister, we're both Pisces. We're both very emotional mm -hmm. people. Um, we have been had, we've both had like twice together. We've had uh, full body sensations, mm -hmm. like like insane emotion, mm -hmm. just like slammed with sorrow, crying, mm -hmm. shaking, feeling like we're being pushed on from all sides, like mm -hmm. insane pressure mm -hmm. where it's like hard to stand up. So it's fascinating that 
that different people are inter- well, inter- interacting. Well, definitely people, there are some people that are just more in tune to it. Um, they're more on that level, that, that, that level to pick that up. I'm not one of those, and that's why I only have a few experiences, but some of them are much more. And, and you know, I can tell you, when my girlfriend and I first started doing this, a staying at haunted B&Bs and whatnot, she was a skeptic. She was. And right out the gate, she started having experiences happen with her, one of which I'll share with you here in a little bit. But she's no longer a skeptic. But I used to joke around back in the day that we would use her for uh, paranormal bait. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the things we had talked about. Ghost you know, trapping. Well, we had talked about, said, you know, just seemed like to me, and we thought, we've done a little research where they say women are three times as likely to have a paranormal experience as a man just because they're more in tune with their senses. And I think that's really the case with her and I, because she picks up, she's paying attention to every little thing. And here I'm worried about what the ball score is. You know, she might tell me something or, you know, I'm like, I'm not listening. You know what I'm saying? I just mm-hmm. kind of tune it out. Um, she says, I have a selective hearing and mm-hmm. it's, <laughs> but that's just a point with it. I will share one thing with you. Um, and I share this on all our tours. I love talking about it because it is an experience that she had, and I was a part of it. And she did see an apparition. And this was back in 2004. When we first got together, we've been together 20 years now, but we got together in... 2004, I went to Gettysburg. I love Gettysburg because I love Civil War history. Love it. And Gettysburg basically is a paranormal playground. To me, it's a lot of stuff that goes on there. We stayed at a bed and breakfast called the Farnsworth House, and we were going to do a two-night stay. I'm going to check in on a Friday, stay Friday and Saturday night, leave Sunday. We knew it was haunted. That was one of the reasons why we were there. We knew it had served as a Civil War hospital during and after the battle. It was also the attic was used as a sniper post for Confederate soldiers up there firing down on Union troops coming through town. So we knew all that, and we figured the hauntings there were all Civil War related. So we do a two-night stay, and we check in on a Friday night. We stayed in a room called the Catherine Sweeney Room, very small room. House actually was built back in 1810, so it's an older house. Anyways, we check in on Friday night, and typical with her and I, how we behave, she goes to bed about 10, 10.30, and she's asleep. She's out like a light, and she's snoring, and I'm like, oh, God, it's going to be one of those nights. So anyways, I'm up till 3, and I turn the light out, and you know how you just start to drift off and sleep? The bed's comfortable. You feel like you're floating. It's warm. It's so soft. And I'm nodding out slowly. I'm just drifting off. That's how I was. And the next thing I know, she wakes up screaming her head off and she's digging her nails up my arm. She's literally going berserk. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? What the is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm off the bed about that high, about a foot. Um, this is scared the heck out of me. I gotta be, I gotta be honest. I mean, she's screaming. I'm like, wow, what, what, what? And she literally is screaming for like a minute or two. It takes me that long to calm her down. And I'm thinking, I'm telling her, you gotta wake everybody up in the house. Please, please settle down and tell me what happened. Step by step. She said, well, there was a woman in our room. I saw a woman. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you couldn't have. No, no. She says, I, I'm telling you, I did. So I said, well, what happened? Tell me. And she says, well, I'm lying there. And she had her face facing in toward me. So she had her back to the wall. So she felt a tap up on her shoulder. And she didn't pay it any mind. So a few minutes later, it was a little push on the bottom of her shoulder blade. She still didn't pay it any mind. A few minutes after that, it was a solid push on her hip. And she said, by this time, she was annoyed. So she rolled over. And she looked up and standing directly over top of the bed, looking down on her was a woman in Victorian clothing. She had her hair in a bun, 
Her color was she was a sepia tone, like the old-time photography, that type of color. She was semi-transparent. She looked very sad. Lisa could even describe the design on her blouse, everything. The thing that really freaked Lisa out was, though, she said they locked eyes. And as soon as they locked eyes, Lisa screamed, and poof, she was gone like that. So I'm trying to rashly explain this and calm her down. I'm saying, you just had a dream, and it's just a bad dream. We're already psyched about staying in a haunted house, and, you know, you just had a bad dream. I tell you what, we'll leave the bathroom light on tonight. When we go down for breakfast in the morning, we'll tell the staff and see what they say. So she's like, okay. She says, it's fine. It's not even 10 minutes later. She's asleep and snoring again, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm all wound up now. I've got cameras here, cameras there. I'm thinking, oh, God, I hope this woman comes back. Look, at here, stand tomorrow. Gosh, I want to get this on film. This is it. This is awesome. So I'm, I'm geared up. Anyway, she's back snoring, asleep. And, you know, so I get maybe an hour sleep. We go down for breakfast Saturday morning, and we tell the staff. And they say, oh, that was Nan. We're like, who the heck is Nan? They said, well, she was a midwife, and there was a stillborn baby lost in that room. She held herself very responsible for the, the baby, the infant's passing and we're like wow and they said yeah she'll make her appearance known to a lot of women they said sometimes she'll just sit on the end of your bed and we're like how cool is that so the second night i'm pretty geared up i'm pretty ecstatic i got cameras here cameras there and it it was pretty uneventful the only thing i was able to film was actually lisa elbowing me in the head and snoring all night another snore till night of which i slept very little but we didn't capture anything but anyways we go down for breakfast sunday morning i said lisa how'd you sleep she said, well, I slept pretty good, but I felt the tapping again. And she says, I was not going to go there. So she didn't engage. She just kept her eyes closed, and it went away eventually. And, you know, for the longest time after that, we had thought, well, maybe it was just a bad dream, you know. But the fact that was 18 years ago, and it has stayed with her to this day. If she were to come down to talk with you now, she would tell you everything about that woman like it happened yesterday. It has stayed with her 18 years. It's almost like it has haunted her. And, you know, I just, we do believe it was something to it that happened that night. Now, I will tell you in regards to that house, and, and Lisa did investigate with us earlier on, and then she gave it up. She said, I just don't want to, I don't like being up all night. You go ahead and do what you want to do and play and have fun with your friends. Just don't bring anybody home. <laughs> I'm like, okay, deal. Anytime something happens now, though, <laughs> she automatically blames me and hits me over the head of the magazine or something. I told you not. To. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't do that, Lisa. But anyways, I have actually taken our team and went back to the Farnsworth house on two occasions and investigated the whole house from top to bottom. Rented the whole house for ourselves. We have come out of there with audio clips of children, women, and what we believe to be soldiers. Um, We've actually, when we've done our investigations, after we shut it down, we all go to a certain room and we'll pick air and, and, and sleep. We'll get some sleep in there. I have went back to that same room on two occasions, the Catherine Sweeney room, and I've slept in there all alone, and I never slept better. I slept like a baby. I would show you something, and I'll show you that to you right now if you would like to see it. I have an image. We did a little research years okay. ago of what we believe this woman looks like. Lisa's identified this woman as the woman that she thinks she witnessed that so night. So it was the ghost of a, a midwife, basically? Yeah. And so um, let me show you this picture. And I told her, I said, oh, look, I'm going to cut you a break, Lisa, because if I would have witnessed this over top of my bed. I'd lose my mind. I would have probably I mean, yelled, the, too. the 
That's pretty intense. What are you showing me? That's a photograph? That's a photograph, photograph of what we believe the woman is. I think she was just called Nan. I'm not sure that was actually her name. But what is that? That's a an old photograph? And that's an old photograph, And yeah. you think that's the person? We, at least believes that's the woman she the, witnessed. Wow. Where'd you find that photograph? Actually, through the, the Farnsworth house, contacting okay. them and looking at some okay. photographs. They had shown us several, and we were like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Now, the idea of making eye contact with a ghost, that is very chilling. Yeah. I do not want to make eye contact with a ghost. And no, it, is, it has stayed with her. I mean, it has all these years. And it's funny because some of the investigations she would participate on in the early days, you know, whether she was working with me or if I put her with someone else to work with that night, she would have things happen. She would capture EVP, good audio, good audio, and come back and share it. And then it just started creeping her out. One, the last investigation she was on was actually at Fort Mifflin in Philadelphia, that pre-revolutionary war fort. We had taken a group of 12 investigators up there that night. And I had divided the group up into four groups of three. And I thought her and two other women about her age would work together. I thought it'd be great. We'll put the three women together and see what they can come up with. Well, we get home from the investigation. Everything went pretty well, pretty smooth. We get home and immediately, as normal with Lisa and I, I end up doing her review on her audio and, and whatnot. And I'm usually pretty rough on it. it, it to me, it's got to be pretty good or I'm going to toss it out. And there was a couple of reasons for that. Number one, she was very bad at one time about whispering. She would also have a recorder on her string and tied around her neck and it would rub, which would cause some, you know, some unwanted noise. So I was just like really tough on her stuff. But anyways, I got home, I got her recorder and I come down here to listen and evaluate. And I'm lying there on that sofa there and I've got the headphones on and I'm listening. Going through several clips and I get to a clip where her and the two women are in a soldier's barracks. Actually, it's part of a guardhouse. And they are not doing a question and answer. They're just talking amongst themselves. And it's like two in the morning and I don't even know how to explain this, but they're just, they're talking female talk. <laughs> Every time I have, when you get a little bit older and you start to put on weight, how certain body parts will hang. I kid you not. Um, I say that a lot. But anyways, that's what they're talking about. And one of the ladies actually starts singing a song, do your ears hang low, do 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 something like that. But anyways, while they're having this conversation, right up on top of the recorder, I hear a male voice come across and say, it doesn't hang on you. Just as, and it's just as raspy, it doesn't hang on you. And they're further away from the recorder. I can tell by the the, the sound. Excuse me, I mean, to, I can tell by the sound of the quality the uh, the quality of the audio that he whatever it was is closer to the recorder than they are. They're further away, and this thing is right up on top of it. And they have no idea what's going on. They never heard it, and they're just doing their thing. And it went on, and that was it. That was the only thing I come across. And so I played that for her. I went up there and gave her a hug and a high five, and I played it for her. Creeped the hell out of her, and she hasn't been back since. <laughs> I mean, it's very unnerving to think that we might have ghosts, phantoms, just like watching us all the time. Yeah. I mean, very unnerving. Yeah. And I, I joke around with her. I said, well, we got a pervert there. I mean, I don't know. But anyways, I've been back there now. I've been alone in that area. And I was like, hey, you remember my girlfriend? Of course, I, I didn't have any luck with her response, but... um that's just, it's just, yeah. Now, here's the question. So mm -hmm. you have, you've had, from how you've been describing it, only a handful of experiences in such a long period of time. Why are you so interested in this? I love like, the history. I love the history and I love the locations. I love the interaction that we have with our team and just the people at the locations. Now, we've been to some that have been great. 
It's been a wonderful experience. And it, I base that on a lot of things, not just because of the paranormal activity. We can go to a location and come away with no paranormal activity, and I can still think it's a wonderful investigation. A lot depends on the staff, the people who own it, how they run it, you know, how we work together as a team. You know, we all enjoy each other. We enjoy the history. There's something to take out of everything. But what made you fascinated by that? Even the, there's plenty of people who love history that mm -hmm. I wouldn't say are interested in paranormal. Well, I grew up with an interest in the paranormal and okay. history. And of course, I loved history in school and growing up. And I think basically the, where the, really what started me on the trek with it was um, I was real big into sports for a long time. I had played football, basketball, and I played about 16 years of softball around the state. I played a lot of tournaments, leagues here in town. And I had just pretty much hung it up due to uh, some injuries. I'd had like four knee operations. And so I finally called it quits after 16 years. And it was just bouncing around for about a year, year and a half of, you know, not anything really to do to take up my time. I wanted to get into something. And I, I, I just started seeing these shows on the Travel Channel, History Channel, about all these cool places. And I was like, that would be so cool to check that out. Mm. And so basically we started like doing that. that we, we would go to different places just to stay. You know, we weren't investigating then at that time. And it, eventually it morphed over to where we joined a group out of Richmond, Virginia. And we were with them a very short time. Uh, and it, th that group actually folded. It was kind of hard for us because of the distance between traveling back and forth to Richmond. And we were new to it. But the group ended up folding. And then a short time after that, I just decided, well, you know, I thought I would form a group here locally for mm. people who were interested in this and see how it would grow and take off. And it did, it did very well. Originally, we were called the Shendor Valley Paranormal Society. And then in 2013, we just changed the name over to Black Raven Paranormal now. Mm. And um, it's grown. I've met a lot, of, a lot of people through this, you know, that have had some wonderful experiences share. They've you know, been great investigators and worked with us mm. over the years. We've been a lot of uh, incredible locations. I do like the, the, the ones with the bigger draw, the history. The more the mm. history, you know, the more excited I get. And I'll give you an example. I mean, tops on my bucket list is Alcatraz. I would mm. love to see Alcatraz. Whether I investigate it or not, I just want to see it. I've been there. But that's <laughs> so cool. <laughs> and, they, and they actually, um, they give you like a headphone. Uh -huh. You can do a tour where you put on headphones with like a recorder. And it is actually quite immersive. Because it has all these like prison, mm -hmm. they play like audio clips that are real. That's what I would love that. And when you're walking around with your head inside of these sounds mm -hmm. that are actual historical sound, it is actually quite, it's yeah. a quite good door. And, and, and I, I'm sure at some point in time I'll get it done because I've got a bucket list and there's places I scratch off of it. Like I always wanted to see the Birdcage Theater out in Tombstone, Arizona. And we've been there now and investigated it. I always wanted to do the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast up in Fall River, Massachusetts. We've done there, done that. Um how yeah. about that Stanley Hotel or whatever? I've not been to the Stanley. That would be another place that's on my bucket list, but I would like to. Absolutely. Um, was in Key West actually last um, last November. Investigated a fort down there called Fort East Martello. It had come up on my radar. It had some Civil War history with it. Um, very cool looking for it. But the thing that really attracted me to it was it was it kept certain artifacts. And one of the things that was on exhibit there was a doll that's supposed to be a curse named Robert. And um, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I'd like to see that. And so I went on their website and I found it where they offered investigations public, but I wanted to do a private. I don't like to do a public investigation. If you're doing a public investigation, don't waste your time or money because you're in there with a lot of people, people you don't know. And really, it's just people running around for different whatever. So anyways, I called down there. I wanted to set up a private investigation, just me and my grandson. We were going on vacation, my grandson, myself, and Lisa, 
And so I thought, well, we'd hit the ground running. We get in there. Can we investigate it private? And we set something up. And they were like, sure. And I said, well, what would be the price? And they gave me a price. And I said, well, that's a, that's a little high, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we did it. We got it. We checked in. We got into Key West on a Saturday. And that evening, uh, him and I, my grandson and I, were in that Ford investigating it all alone. And uh, come across, come across Robert. And some of the things, because like, I'd had people message me, you know, be very respectful. And of course, I was. I wasn't going to chance anything. So we were very respectful. Said to a lot of people that aren't have bad luck when they leave there or things happen. Oh, no. What, so what's the scoop with this doll? Well, supposedly he's from the late 1800s. They believe he was originally created in Germany. And somebody had brought him over here and, and given him as a gift to a child that had him his whole life into adulthood. And there's just there's just so much, so many stories of bad luck and mojo around this thing. And now it's the man has passed away now, so it's been through various owners or whatnot. But it currently sits in this museum. It's actually too. Zach Bagans has had some contact with it, uh, with uh, Ghost Adventures as well as Ozzy Osbourne. I don't know. There's mm. some some history there with Ozzy and the doll as well. Being mm. able to visit there and claiming they've had some bad things happen. Mm. Um, but I thought it was pretty pretty cool nonetheless. We did the investigation there. It was, it was very interesting. I enjoyed the history. I enjoyed seeing Robert. Uh, and, and, you know, we were respectful, both of us. We weren't, gonna, we weren't going to tempt anything anyway. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, we had actually, we'd come across some videos of people prior, like I'd put on TikTok going down there. One guy went by the dial in broad daylight and was getting the finger. Like, I wouldn't do that, but. I would never do that. I'm no. way too superstitious. <laughs> I'm way too superstitious for that. But uh, have you? Are you familiar with Robert Dadal? Have you no. seen? Um, if we have a picture of him, he looks like a little. He's in a little sailor outfit. I might have. I might know what you're talking about. It might, I might have heard it on a on a folklore podcast. Very spooky. I have heard this. I <laughs> I heard it on the podcast called Lore. <laughs> It's too scary. Yeah. I get very scared about that stuff. Yeah. And I, I had, you know, because we were talking about going down there and I had a lot of investigators. Excuse me. I had a lot of people contact me telling me, you know, you be careful. You know, you do this and don't do that and all that. And, then, you know, um, I was like, yeah, I, I'm going to take it pretty serious. I know when we went down there after the investigation, the guy who was actually running or over top of the museum, he gave us some stuff to smudge on the back of our necks. So really? it was from, yeah, to, just to kind of like something, nothing left with us. Uh, I'm not real familiar and versed with all that, but we did. We did it anyways. <laughs> you know. Um, do you do, do, is there anything like that that you do normally to not bring home any? Do you, you, know, do, I'll, do, do you I'll, believe I'll, that you can't, do you believe that some people do bring these things home with them? Yeah, I do. Uh-huh. And I think things can attach to you. If you can, you can be a, uh, what we call a weak link. Sometimes you have to be in the right frame of mind, mental, to go on an investigation. And by that, I mean you don't want a lot of turmoil going on in your life. Holy shit. I, th I believe that. If you're somebody that's considered a weak link, yeah, you can be attacked and attack something can attach itself to you. Um, and I've had people, believe it or not, we've been on investigations where, back in the day where we had bigger groups and we invited a lot of people that wouldn't obey our protocols and would ask for something to come home with them. And lo and behold, it did. And then they didn't know what to do about it. Like what? Can you say more about that? Well, like, can I, you get, I, say, I, give I, some details? I know of a gentleman one time at the West Virginia State Penitentiary that was investigating there and had made the comment, why don't you just come on home with us? You need a place to, you know, you, you're welcome with us. And then it wasn't, and he didn't tell me this because, you know, it's against our protocol to do that. But then when he started having some things happen, he shared with me what, how it transpired. And he 
said, I'm, we're having some crazy stuff going on around the house, and we think something came home with us. Like what? Well, I think it was things like lampshade, lamps falling over, stuff like that, things falling off the wall, voices, shadows. Fuck. You know, and he was he was pretty freaked out about it. I don't know, because at the time, he was pretty much leaving the group, so I don't know how it was handled. How they got rid of it at the time. We don't have anybody at the time. We didn't have anybody in there in our group to do that. And one of the things when we do, and we don't longer really do residential investigations. I kind of gave that up a while back. Um, but I would always tell people when they would contact us for such is we're not an exterminator or anything like that. We're more of a documentation type. We'll try to prove something or you know give you some kind of credible evidence or debunk it. Dependent. I find my experiences with residentials are they're more. You have more to risk than gain. I, I I don't mind helping people in certain situations, but you take a lot of hits with it. For one, we don't charge to go in and do a residential investigation for someone. We never would. Uh, but you put yourself at a lot of risk because anytime you go into somebody's home, anything can happen. You can make something worse. Something can happen. You get blamed for it. Your reputation take a bump or hit, or you can just deal with certain psychos. There are some people that just love the attention. They'll have you come out every night. And, you know, we are, we have personal lives, too, jobs and stuff. I've literally had people call me here at the house 1231 in the morning. Oh, I need your help. It's just terrible. I've got that right away. Can you help me? And I'm scared, scared to death. And I get somebody lined up the next day to get with him to do an interview and get some more information. And you can't get a hold of them. You never hear anything from them again. Yeah, uh, the, one, the woman I interviewed down in Chesapeake has had some real deranged people have them come over and then they're like doing really weird stuff, saying weird stuff, like getting naked, just like, and they're like, we're done here. Yeah. You meet, that's, that's the downside of this field. You meet some real nuts, some real dangerous people. Some people mm. are in some stuff that you don't want to go down that road. Mm. And that's the thing, that's the negative about it. So I really, unless I really know the individual real well, or if mm. it's something I really, I, I'm, I'd be more prone to help somebody out if, if there's a child involved that's at risk or something, type of thing, those type of things, or somebody I know personally. Um, the other side of it, no, I don't, and we don't put it as advertising that we do residentials anymore. Mm. Did early on, when I first started, we did a lot of them. So how do you protect yourself from having anything come home with you? Well, I actually, I will, sometimes I'll say a little prayer mm. before I go out. I'm pretty grounded with what I do. Yeah, you I, are very grounded. I, I'm, I'm grounded with it, so don't go pretty much on that other level. But I will say in some situations when we leave, we'll, we'll tell, we'll just flat out say, you can't come home with us. Don't, you need to stay here, and I expect you to stay here. I, I, I use one of the things when, and I tell people that to contact us when they have activity going on, I tell them the first thing you need to do is just take control and take charge. Mm. You don't have to be disrespectful, but just say, hey, look, I live here now, you know, I respect and understand you're here, but this is my house and you can't do such and such. Mm. And you just tell it. Most of the times those things will go away like that. Sometimes mm. they won't. And when they don't, then you bring somebody else in that might on a different level that mm. I'm not qualified. And I tell people that I'm not qualified to do that. I don't know the first thing about doing that, mm. but I, I would turn that over to like a good medium or something that might do some smudging or sage or whatnot or mm. different things, whatever that's needed. Do your, does your medium friend and do you believe that we living people can help some of these stuck souls? I do believe some people can. And, I, you know, I've, I've worked with two different mediums in our group, and they've both been very good. Uh, Shea Willis early on and Don Rogers, and I believed in them 100%. Um, i, I got to be honest, though, when starting out, I was skeptical of it. But what I would do with them is both I'd put them in situations where – if there was a location that come up, they got no information as to where or what it was. They just would go, and then they would tell me what they felt or per could perceive based on the information I'd already researched. 
And it always lined up. They were both very good. And they would do things like that in certain situations. I would turn it over to them because it's out of my realm. And if they wanted to, you know, I'd let them take it from there. And and they felt like they could help this thing yeah, move on? Yeah, I've had both of them go out in situations and help help something move on, If it was, especially if it was negative, mm. you know, or advise the family what the, to do. Wait, wait, the living family. The living family. The humans. Yes, the human okay. family. Advise them how to, how to deal with it, mm. how to cope with it, what to go, you know, on with next. My God, man. Yeah. How has this all... Um, how has this all informed your own notions about death and dying? Well, I, you know, I, I know with, I do think there are things out there that are bad. Um, I do. Not a ghost. You mean Not something a ghost, else. Something that That's what the other woman, paranormal, she's, she, she uses Christian language. So uh -huh. She said demon, demonic. Yeah, I go with that. I do believe there, there, those things are out there. I, to date, have not come across anything that I know of. It's not saying I haven't. But that I know of, I have not. But there's also a situation, too, and I look at it like this. In some of the locations we have gone into, and I'll give you an example, like the West Virginia State Penitentiary, and you're going in there, you're going in there to do investigation. If you think you're going to come out of there with any audio that's probably going to be good, no, you're misinformed because a lot of the people, or the people that were in there were not good people. So, you know, I generally think, like, if, if you're a bad person when you die, I don't see a whole lot changing with what you are or what you were when you were alive. And we, and, and lo and behold, we have. We have went to these locations, and some of the audio we've come out of there with has been horrific. You know, you but mean? you would expect that. What do you mean horrific? Horrific as far as, like, cussing you, you know, or, or, really? or you know, or I could kill you or that. Yeah, we've come out of there with that You've stuff. had voices say, I'm going to kill you? Well, I'll put one like this. We had asked one out at Bobby Mackey's. Lisa had asked something. There was some out there that did not like me, and it had mentioned it, and Lisa had asked, and this was through the spirit box, and I'll talk with that, about that a little bit later, but what had come across the box was uh, she had asked if you didn't like me, and the, there was a reply, yes, don't. And, uh, well, if you, what would you, would you do anything to Marty? What, what would you do? And I'm like, why the hell did you ask that, Lisa? <laughs> and it said murder. You could hear yeah, you could hear that. that come through the box. And this was in a, a penitentiary? <laughs> this was, no, this was actually at Bobby Mackey's Country Music Bar in Wilder, Kentucky. That is a place that's been on a lot of the shows, and it's supposedly known for some demonic stuff that went on in the basement there. Mm. It's a famous country music bar now, mm. but there was some stuff that bad stuff that went on there in the basement back in the early, late, late 1800s, early 1900s, where a lady was actually beheaded down there as a sacrifice to something. What? So, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Tell more about that. But, well, anyway, so what I will say about Bobby Mackey's, it was a location that we went to that some of the stuff that we had researched. The wait, place, wait, wait, wait. Wait, what? Wait, what do you, what was happening in the 1800s? Well, it was 1800s. There was a lady that was actually supposedly beheaded in the basement. But this was like a, a ritualistic sacrifice? Well, it was part of it. It was also, too, it was, it was a, like a domestic dispute as well. But oh there were my. some people that were involved in some bad, say, say satanic things. So they say mm. in, in the basement there. There's a lot of things on their television shows. People that have had things that have happened there that have been really extreme. Mm. But I look at it like, because I know how the business works with these shows, mm -hmm. and a lot of these things are enhanced, or they're just yeah. or pure BS has been put out there. Yeah. The reason I can tell you that is because we actually had somebody approach us years ago about doing such. And one a of the TV first show. things, yeah, being part of something. And one of the first things that was asked is how far would you go to bend something? Yeah, that's, see, and then all that does is ruin 
these really fascinating mysteries. Yeah. It turns it into cheeseball clown I, stuff. I, to be honest with you, I hate the shows. I mean, yeah. I enjoy them for entertainment, that part and seeing locations, but what they do to the field is a very, it's, it's, yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. Granted, you you can get evidence and data where you go, but it doesn't happen like that. And people do. They think it happens on cue here, there, or there. Mm. You know, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Mm. Um, but in regards to Bobby Mackey's, we were able to go out there. Some of the things that they had mentioned on the shows and on, on their site about some of the things that happened, we were able to at least put something with that that there could be a potential cause. One of the things was in the basement. They had a lot of people that complained of being sick and dizzy and whatnot down there. One of the first things I noticed when we got there is they had like four or five different barrels in different locations that caught beer cans and beer bottles from upstairs in the bar that just sat there that stunk to high heaven. That would certainly make you sick. Mm. It's a very nasty smell, mm. you know, and it's it's all over down there. And it's saying you know, just things like that. Mm. Um, some of the things too with some of these locations are such a buildup. It's so commercialized. There's such a buildup with it, mm. you know. And uh, again, and I tell our investigators when we go to locations, kind of throw those notions out. Just play it for what you can. The evidence and data that you can get, and put the other stuff out of your mind if you can. Sometimes that's hard. You can't. Um, but especially with some of these bigger name locations, the one mm. that really like market the name or something. So, so back to my question: How has this colored your own feelings about mortality? Like, is this make you more scared to die, less scared to die? I would say it's probably about the same. It hasn't really same. changed it. Interesting. Yeah. Only thing I you know scared as far as like leaving my loved ones and stuff like mm -hmm. that, the way of life I've got. But as far as face and what's that, I don't think I, I really don't think about that too mm. much. But I think it's probably pretty much the same. Mm. Um, you know, I do more and more have a very, and I guess it's a Christian kind of a Christian notion, but I do really feel like, you know, I listen to, I see, I watch, I listen to accounts of people who've had like near death experiences. Mm -hmm. I've had someone on the podcast who's had a near death experience. Mm -hmm. I've had listen to reincarnation experiences. It sounds like a lot of the near death experiences are very beautiful experiences mm -hmm. and it seems very loving, whatever that means, like a very guided and loving and uh there's like a peaceful transition right but i really at the exact same time i really have a feeling that if you live a really dark life mm -hmm. you're not getting that like i really feel like if you are like at the front of a holocaust or like just slaughtering people i really feel like you don't get that mm -hmm. you don't get the nice beautiful angelic transition like mm -hmm. i really feel like the i really feel like the way we live on in earth will affect mm -hmm. whatever's next and i agree with that that's kind of like what i was saying with the individual you are once you pass i don't see a whole lot changing with you right you know and 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 that's kind of how i look at it with the locations depending on the location we go to some of those bad locations like a penitentiary you know something like that or a place where a horrific crime has been committed mm -hmm. you know if that if that being is there you know, why would they? What would change to make them want to be, you know, like, hey, Harry, I don't see it. I just don't mm. see it. Um, you know, another thing, too, and you, you made me think of that when you were talking about the afterlife. It's another method sometimes that I use in my audio techniques and stuff. When I've run out of it like everything else and I've asked all the questions I've researched or I've gotten things incorrect or I've <laughs> – Sometimes I'll even talk about myself. <laughs> I don't just a general conversation. But I do go, there's another card I'll play and then I just straight up tell or announce what I'm here for, what I do, try to explain as best I can what the equipment I have, and really to kind of get a glimpse of what it's like in the afterlife because I'm gonna be there someday. So I do use that method as well. That's kind of like the last card I play. 
And have you gotten any information? No. <laughs> no, I'd like to sit here and tell you, yeah, but no, I can't really say. Um, no. It's more, I think the more interaction I've got is, and it, it really amazes me. It's not so much from the question and answer. It's just general conversation. If I'm with mm. another investigator and we just happen to be talking, mm. something's chipped in. Uh, I worked with an investigator out uh, Waverly Hills uh, um, Sanatorium out in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm. It was a tuber tuberculosis hospital. And I was working with an investigator out there. And we were in an area uh, on the fourth floor, a huge building, by the way. It was just her and I. And we were talking. She had misplaced her keys, and we were looking for them. And, I, and she said, I can't find my keys. And I said, I don't see them. And, and then you hear, hear a, a whisper voice say, over there. <laughs> I mean, it's not me. <laughs> I, I don't like this notion that we're being watched all the time by ghosts. Yeah. That we're just surrounded by ghosts or something. Mm -hmm. right. One other story I'll share with you, and I, while I'm on Waverly Hills, and this deals with my medium. We had investigated that, and um, we had 10 people out there, five floors, two a floor, and this building's huge. I can't even put it in proper perspective. Probably about the size of the two D. Jarnett buildings put together. Huge building. But anyways, we had investigated it. Come away that evening, and we were coming home. A lot of us had rode out together in a van, and we were coming home in a van, and I was back in the back. Someone else was driving. I'm back in the back. I was already getting kind of a head start listening to some of my audio. And I come out with a, an EVP from the morgue there, and um, I thought, that's pretty good. And so I, I actually I talked to our medium. who Her name is Dawn Rogers. And uh, she had worked with somebody else, and I asked her, just picking her brand, I said, you know, did you – during the investigation, was there a location that interested you more? You felt there was more activity there. What 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 was it? And um, she said the morgue. And it kind of I was like, really? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so she said, yeah. She said, um, I just felt there was a, a male presence in there as soon as I went in that just really basically rushed right up to me and wanted to be heard. And um, I said, did they say anything? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what did they say? She said, they said, hey. Reason I asked her that I was trying to play along with that. The EVP that I had captured down there with the other investigator, I had a male whisper say, "Hey," God. so I was able to. I was like, "That's pretty cool." <laughs> That's to pretty to, to link those two to things link up. that together. That wow. was pretty daggone cool. And we I, actually, you know, because I, I knew when I heard it, I, I've got an EVP. I can hear a male voice, and and then I would I listen a little clip. Yeah, it's it's hey. And so I asked her, I just, because I would love to, one of the things with her and, and even Shay, when Shay was with us, I would love to pick her brains. What'd you think? What are you thinking? What do you feel? Mm -hmm. You know, this, that, and I just, yeah. And mm -hmm. so I did. And I was like, that's pretty cool. We can collaborate that. That's mm -hmm. neat. Yeah. Like I said, my, all my ghost experiences are feelings. It's super intense pressure uh -huh. on the body, super intense emotions. In, at the Manassas battlefield with my little sister uh -huh. a few nights before Christmas at twilight, Super intense experience. I had a super intense one at the catacombs in Paris. Which oh, nice. There's You've just there. thousands of skulls everywhere. Yeah. I mean, super intense experience. I have a friend that's, that was over there a few years ago, and he said it was amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's just uh, awe-inspiring to uh -huh. just be, you're in you're in the underworld. Yeah, that's pretty much how you put bones. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll say it again. I've said it on the podcast, but so you, have you been there? I have not. No. So you walk, you go down. A, it's not like America where everything's kind of like there. There are like checkpoints or like guides and people guards, you know, mm -hmm. security and stuff. You just go down this spiral staircase until you're just like underground, and there's just like a black, bare, low lit tunnel. And I'm just <laughs> like, I guess we just start walking. So it's just me and my sister. 
And we're, you walk for 15 minutes through these dark, pretty tight corridors under the, under the bowels of Paris. Wow. And um, I, at this point, I had never had a ghost experience. But we came around a corner, and I just felt pressure all around me. And I was like, Dad, I guess this is a ghost experience. But I didn't want to scare my sister. Mm -hmm. So we kept going. There's, we're not seeing anybody. And then finally, from these tight corridors that are just like a normal house hallway, like pretty mm -hmm. damn tight, mm -hmm. um, for 15 minutes, sometimes the lights would be out and it'd be a pool of darkness and you just cross through it. Um, finally, it it opens into a small chamber, maybe about the size of your basement studio here. And um, there's a doorway and there's a big block. And in the block is chiseled, Ici est l'empire de la mort, which means here's the empire of death. And wow. you step through that doorway mm -hmm. and it's floor to ceiling skulls. And um, there was a woman in there with her daughter. Mm -hmm. They were, they visually, they looked completely fine. Like they were just at a museum. Mm -hmm. The second me and my sister walked through that threshold through the empire of death, into the empire of death, um, my sister just immediately starts crying and shaking. And I just feel like I can hardly stand up and my knees are like buckling wow. and so much weight like pushing on my back mm -hmm. and just feeling unbelievable amount of sorrow. Just like not one person sorrow, but just like collective just sorrow. And uh, that was my first big ghost experience where I like really knew that something happened. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty amazing. Yeah, and it does. I mean, I, I cried on my way were out. Were you able to take photographs down there? Oh, I took pictures. Yeah, they, they allow I, that. Yeah, okay, I took cool. some black. You know what's really whack is when you, because again, like I said, there's no security around. It's not, you know, you go to a museum in America, there's mm -hmm. a security guard in like every room. Mm -hmm. There's nobody down there. It's just go on your own. And we were in the winter, so it wasn't. So, but when you leave, you go back up to the street mm -hmm. and you enter into a little building, again, just about the size of your studio. And there's a security guard checking people's bags because people steal bones. Oh, yeah. I could see and that. And there was a table with the bones because the person that had just left had had tried to take stuff. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Stealing human remains and putting in your house, you that's bringing home a spirit. Yeah. Yeah, people don't think, or maybe that's their intention to begin with. Maybe they want to bring somebody home. Like I said, with us, you know, I have had people, you know, through, our, through the years with our groups that have been in situations where they've asked things or asked someone to come home with them. Worst idea ever. We had a, another um, situation somewhere where somebody had asked or, you know, they were going to allow them to use their body to, to for any energy or whatever they needed to do to manifest oh my uh, a situation. We've had that happen. And what happened? Uh, I didn't know about it till afterwards, but <laughs> nothing that I'm aware of happened. But it's just one of those things you have. One of the biggest things, the hardest things about a paranormal group is you bring in so many different people. And the larger the group gets, you have all kinds of different ideologies or people that won't go with your protocols and procedures. It's kind of difficult to manage, particularly the larger the group gets. Mm. You know, a lot of these things you don't find out till after the fact. As far mm. as I know, not any anything happened, but it's one of those things when you find out about it, like, you know, you either have a decision to, to make, to make it, it's, it's corrected or you, or you get rid of that individual, <laughs> mm. you know, because it's just, it's, it's bad. It, it can be bad for the whole group. You know, I want to, at some point with this podcast, I want to interview an exorcist and mm -hmm. just hear what their point of view is of what's going on. Oh, I think that would be really cool. Oh I yeah. Do. I do. Um, you know, some of the things over the years when we have found people, um, it's been things that have been, when it's ended negatively like that, it's really just not respect for the protocols or procedures. And they're the ones we put in are in there. They're in there for a reason, you know, 
And and one of the things we really pride ourselves on being respectful, respectful mm. of the deceased, the mm. living, the location, your teammates mm. as well, mm. you know, everybody. You go into it with that. But you and, will find and, that people do not. And we have had people that done the same thing. They'll take something. You know, pick up something, they'll take it. And just like, just like at the mythological level, like respect, like when you read mythology, just when a human interacts with, with a God, mm -hmm. I mean, it very easily can blow them to smithereens. Like just so if, when you're engaging with an insane mystery, just the level of humbleness that you, you know, it's like going in there and flicking off a haunted a haunted doll, mm. a haunted mystery. Yeah, I don't no, know No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that very bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. And, you know, the thing, you can only vet somebody with so much, mm -hmm. you know, and you really don't know. I mean, we've had a lot of good people come through the group. We've had a lot of bad people, too. Mm. You know, there have been a lot of mistakes made. Mm. Um, you know, it's really hard to vet somebody. You have to must work with them for a period of time. Even when you have somebody you think you know and you can trust. And when certain situations happen, mm. how are they going to react? Or there's just a lot of different things. Again, I go back to the media and stuff. A lot of people come into it and what they see on television, they mm. believe wholeheartedly, mm. you know, and I think that's a mistake. I'm sorry. Okay. I think that's a mistake to do that. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, are, does any of this scare you? Not yet, no. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I will tell you, and I say this a lot uh, for all my years of experience, and I, I tell people, you have more to fear from the living than you do the dead. I, believe I think that. that a lot. I believe that. Like the a deranged person is going to slam you in the head with an axe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would just say, <laughs> in, in when I mean that for the living, um, I find in this field you meet people with all kind of different ideologies, and sometimes if it doesn't line up with yours, mm -hmm. it can go too far. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have. I have literally had had those situations. You know, where um, and I mean, man, it's just a paranormal investigation, but you have people that will stalk you, or you know, I've, there's been situations now where. I don't know if I want you to put this out there, but um, I don't, I used to put when I would go out of her, if we were doing something, I'd put it out beforehand. I don't do that now because she's here alone. I don't want anybody to, you know, you never, you never know with people. Well, let's kind of wrap this up. Sure. So um, two things for wrapping it up. What For one, why don't you say a little bit about your paranormal tours here mm -hmm. in uh, Stanton, sure. Stanton. Stanton. And There's then also um, any, any other little quick uh, ghost lore that's local? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I will. I will say this: um, as far as our our ghost tours here in Stanton, and there's different ways people pronounce it. We always have a thing here. If you say it's Staunton, that's the northern way, and you're not from around here. There are people that you can say Staunton. There's other people that just say Stanton. Mm -hmm. So you're considerable local if you say Stanton, mm -hmm. because this was this was a Confederate stronghold during the war. Um, we do do ghost tours. We actually do them around year round now, but they're more prominent. And our peak season is September and October, where it's every weekend. Uh, now in October, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We have four different tours we offer for the month of October. When we get past that, like in November and the other months, it's kind of sporadic. We might pick a certain um, event. And I'll give you an example. Like if it's Friday the 13th, mm. we're going to do a ghost tour. Mm. If it's a full moon on a weekend, we're going to do a ghost tour. If it's a specific holiday or something, we might do a ghost tour that weekend. So we kind of, you know, it's kind of sporadic through the rest of the year, but they are year-round. You can go to our website at ghostsystand.com. It has all the information on our schedules, tours, prices, and the difference. tells about the difference between the tours. As far as any history and haunted history around here, there are a lot of wonderful locations that are just certainly what's worth. This, what's like the most eerie? What, what's one of the best, scariest, or weirdest 
uh, local hauntings? Well, I will tell you, there's actually two locations that we have uh, the, a lot of reports from. Uh, the downtown depot station here. That's a train station? Um, it's a train station. And, of course, the American Hotel sits right across from it, which was a Civil War hospital. There's a lot of reports down there of things that happen. People people go down there and investigate. Of course, you have to be careful. Um, investigate down there. I mean, there's a lot of people that come through in and out. And if you're down there past a certain time, the police are going to want to know why. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be careful when you go down there. But there's a lot of activity down there. That was kind of like the hubbub during the years of the Civil War. Uh, there was so much coming through the depot station there. We had dead, wounded POWs. This was a very strategic location during the war because we manufactured equipment, uh, blankets, shoes, it, uh, food come through here. It was a center of commerce. And the big thing with the railroad was it was a direct link to Richmond, Virginia. And, you know, Richmond being the capital of Confederacy. We had a lot of big stars come through the, the depot station there of uh, the war. General Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jubal Early, even Ulysses S. Grant come through here after he was president. So it's a lot of history, a lot of things that go on down there. And it is an active area. And then we have a house over on Coulter Street here in town called the Charlotte Kaufman House. Actually, somebody's bought it and went in there now, and they've renovated it. It's a beautiful home. A woman lived there back in the, born in the 1800s through the 1900s. She died in 1988. Her name was Charlotte Kaufman. She was kind of a a little bit of eccentric, you might say, dressed in all black. There's a lot of weird things that happened there. Very protective of her home. But anyways, a gentleman that's bought it has restored it, and he is on the verge of offering some tours in there and some other little things. He calls it like a Victorian center. Uh, very cool, refined, beautiful home. A lot of things happen there. We've had guides that have been there that have said things, and they think that maybe with some of the things they've spoken about Charlotte and the stories, we've had lanterns where the glass is just shattered. Mm. We've had things fall out of trees and hit the guides in the head. Mm. We've had women and people there that have become nauseous and ill or mm. have felt her presence. I even many years ago, I had somebody contact me on Facebook. Didn't even know them. Uh, they had come across some advertising we were doing on our ghost tours. And I had posted a picture of that house up there. And they messaged me, not knowing who I was, asked me about the tours and said that they felt a specific connection to that house and the woman that lived there. Hmm. And I was blown away. And this lady was from St. Louis. Hmm. I was like, wow. And you tell me a little bit more. And she started telling me a few things. And I'm like, yeah, you're kind of describing. You know, but she could have gotten that online. I don't mm-hmm. know. My mind would have. But it was, I thought it was fascinating nonetheless. Those are two active areas. And then, of course, you know, one of the big draws of why people come here is to see the D. Jarnett Sanatorium, the buildings. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the old Western State, but particularly D. Jarnett. And the reason being is because the name attached to that. If you look up Dr. Joseph D. Jarnett, he was the man here. He was the proponent of eugenics. Right. You know, he was very vocal about it. Right. During right. his lifetime. And, um, you know, people, the, the kind of a misconception with it. I mean, I believe that there could be some paranormal activity in D. Jarnett, but until you can actually investigate it mm-hmm. and go in there and prove that, and you'd have to get people out because there's, mm-hmm. like I said, homeless people in there. Mm-hmm. Acts, mm-hmm. You have to clean the place out and then go in and do that to investigate. But I think more so, it has more so the name from his D. Jarnett himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as far as, we tell people that as far as if were there sterilizations performed at D. Jarnett Sanatorium? We don't know. I really don't. There could have mm. been. We know Dr. Joseph D. Jarnett presided over it and, you mm. know, it was named in his honor. But the, we, we do, what we do know is the fact that Western State Lunatic Asylum did have this sterilization. Mm. They did go on there. It was a pit prison. It was a penitentiary. It dates, dates back to 1828. Whereas D. Jarnett, it was established in 1932. Yeah. You, um, as the final note, you, uh, Reminded me of this when you talked about the Victorian house with the glasses breaking. Mm-hmm. I used to work at this uh, basement restaurant in Brooklyn, and 
um, I would be working down there. There was a bar on the main floor and down in the basement was a restaurant. It's just candlelit. It was made to look very vintagey. Um, I would work down there by myself. I'd be down there by myself for hours and hours. Some days during the week, no one would ever come down there. And I would just be sitting there reading and glasses would just start falling off the <laughs> behind me. And I'd be like, did I just like bump that great? Did my shirt graze that? And then one time the, um, the cook came down and talked to me and we're both standing behind this little candlelit bar in this tiny basement in Brooklyn. He's talking and they're 20, 30 feet in front of us. There's a wooden door that, um, opens into a stairwell and then that stairwell goes up into the street. So it's like where you would take trash bags. Mm -hmm. So me and him are just talking behind this bar and that door, which is, has like a little pin for a latch, mm -hmm. like a, like a pin that goes into a little circle to hold it. Right. We're just talking that door flies open and the metal pin is just spinning in circles on the wall. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we're just looking at each other like, did, are we both seeing that that just happened? Mm -hmm. Nuts. Yeah, you sound just like me. When you see something like that, you're just kind of like, I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> I don't know what to th I always kind of laugh at first. I'm like, did I really? Did I really just witness that? Man. You know, it, it is it, it is really cool when something does happen like that. At, mm -hmm. at least I, I, when I go back and I think about it, I was like, gee, that was really neat. It mm -hmm. was really neat. I got to experience that. And it's all the more better when you can validate mm -hmm. it. If you got it on a recorder or a video camera, sometimes it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. So I've told you I've had situations where I've had the camera on the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when something else happened. You're like, uh, that's just the way it rolls. Um, but I think being grounded with it and, and, and mm, telling them to share the experiences, is, you know, how it, how it works and stuff. And I, I, one of the biggest things, when we bring new people into the group, everybody's excited and you go out. And, and really the hardest thing is getting people to be objective with your mm. evidence and data, you know, as to what can be rationally explained and, and you know, what's potential and what's not. And there's always an eagerness to, to capture stuff. And I, I try to encourage people to debunk and think things mm. through first. Like maybe there was an explanation for why that might sure. have happened. But that's kind of hard, especially with new people that come in because they want it so bad. I was, it was just like that myself. Yeah, sure. It took a lot of stuff that we had captured. We were taking around to people online in different places, stuff that we thought we had, and naturally they would piss all over it. And sure. you're like, <laughs> but you get it. Yeah. After you've done it 20-some, then you get it. You get it. All right. Well, I better wrap this up because it's 11 at night and I got to drive for two hours through the hills and forests in the darkness. I got uh, you. And uh, hopefully I don't see anything wacky and uh, <laughs> hopefully it's an uneventful drive home. Well, be safe. Um, thank you for this. This is awesome. And this is going to be like the main Halloween episode. So I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you, sir. Especially during your busy season. I appreciate you having us on.